Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and this is the Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, February 26, 2019, starting at 12.10 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 195th episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic about the astrological forecast for March of 2019. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Uh, hey guys, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Hello. Chris. Hey, so welcome back. It's been a month somehow, and it's time to talk about the forecast for March, where I think we've got a little bit going on astrologically, right? Well, some very clear signatures that may lead to a lack of clarity. Yeah, uh, there are some signatures, and we'll get into that. We've got like a Mercury retrograde coming up. We've got Uranus going into Taurus, uh, and a few other uh, fun little things coming up this month. So for those that are just watching the video version, there'll be some timestamps in the description. We're going to start out by sort of catching up with what we've been up to over the past month, talk about some of the podcast topics that have come up over the past few weeks and do a bit of a recap uh, and other astrological news for the first hour or so. And then eventually we'll jump into the forecast for March later on, probably like halfway into the episode. So if you want to skip our pre-forecast chat, then just look for the timestamps below this video on YouTube and then you can jump forward. So Otherwise, it's literally a pre-ramble rather than a preamble. Right. This is that the pre-ramble. So yeah. The, the warm-up to the forecast. We need to get primed and sort of build up to talking about the forecast by first looking at the past and kind of like reflecting on what we've been doing for the past few weeks, and then we can move forward. Well, I mean, we're all waiting with bated breath, Chris, for the update on Lobstergate. Lobster Lobstergate is probably, again, as with last month, the most pressing topic that we need to touch on first. Uh, hashtag Lobstergate. So- Last month, and unfortunately, there was a bit of a bombshell that was dropped uh, pretty early on <laughs> in the process of Lobstergate unfolding over the course of February. So uh, for those that didn't listen to that episode, just to catch you up, part of it was talking about how uh, one of my biggest pet peeves is how the in ancient astrology, cancer, you know, each of the zodiac signs was symbolized by an animal totem, or occasionally like an inanimate object for some reason with Libra. Uh, but cancer means crab, and crab has always traditionally been the animal totem associated with the sign of cancer. But for some reason, um, a lobster is occasionally like substituted by different artists for cancer as if that's somehow equivalent or the same when you know they're very different, different crustaceans. So, um, do you want to make a confession now? I I don't know. Well, is there anything (laughs) else? How how do you guys feel about this now that you've had a month to sit with it? Have have you guys any new thoughts? I mean, the only kind of idea we might have talked about this last time, or I might have seen it on Twitter, was just one of the reasons that you know the lobster and the crab are not the same is they move in different directions. You know, lobsters have a little bit more of a forward motion. Um, whereas crabs are, are very sideways. So th- there is some symbolic inaccuracies here in addition to just being plain wrong. Yeah, that was Austin. I think the point you made, Austin. Yeah, I think, yeah I'm like, I feel like we did talk about this. Well, and I would add to that, one of the things that um, that I use when I'm teaching cancer is the the fact that not all, this is not true of all crabs, but there are a great number of crabs 
that are um, amphibious, you know, meaning they do water some of the time and they do land the rest of the, you know, uh, other times. There are a few just land crabs and sea crabs, but for the most part, they are the amphibious crustacean. Whereas, you know, praise the sweet Lord Jesus, um, lobsters do not walk on land um, because that would be horrifying. But there's something about that, you know, being, being, um, uh, being essentially aquatic and yet being armored up enough to do the, the dry, harsh land, um, yeah. uh, the, you know, which the crab, many crabs are that I think speaks to the essence of the cancer archetype. Right. So I wanted to clarify, I don't actually really care about this. Like I just thought it was kind of funny and, and it's always funny to me when I see the lobster substituted for the crab. And it's only a like a moderately, it's pretty like low down on my list of priorities of like major things I'm I'm railing against or like actually obsessed about on any regular regular basis. But it's something that's funny to be aware of. I did learn over the course of this month that part of the reason, evidently, as several people pointed out to me, that this may have happened is that in some languages, the word used for crab is somehow like interchangeable and can also mean lobster so there may be partially like a linguistic issue in some languages where there's overlap between the word used and therefore there may have been some like merging or overlap in some of like the later artistic traditions for that reason or there could be some specific linguistic reason for it um although certainly sometimes it's just like an accident and you know, like on stock photo sites, oftentimes it's just some artist who's illustrating it, and they may not have any background in astrology or realize that you know it needs to be a crab rather than a lobster or what have you. But well, are are crabs universally distributed? Um, there might be places where they just have crayfish in their rivers and no crabs. Like you know, I don't know. I yeah. remember growing up in Wisconsin. Um, we had a creek in the backyard, and there were lots of uh, there were crayfish in the rivers, but I don't remember ever seeing a crab. Well, I think they're a saltwater creature, so there are freshwater crabs. Oh, there are freshwater crabs too. I, okay. I believe so. Okay, so we're going to all get a massive yeah, education. I'm learning more about. <laughs> I'm crabs looking than forward I ever to the comments. But I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying, if you've never seen a crab, you know, and you're, you're like, oh, it's the crusty thing that lives in the water. You're like, great, I know about those. Yeah. This is brilliant. Right. So, and of course, the funniest thing that happened actually in this entire yes. Lobstergate saga was one, or actually like two or three people at this point have pointed out to me that at the very end of every podcast episode on YouTube, the sort of generic like astrology image that I use of the Zodiac at the end, of course, it has like a lobster in the place of cancer because of yeah. course, if I'm going to be complaining about that, I will inevitably end up being guilty of it as well of so course, you're part are. of the problem chris yeah i am i'm part of the problem that's, you know that, but that's you. that's that's an important step in unwinding like these really big issues that are part of our time yeah well apparently i am part of the problem and so i come to you all with a heavy heart and would like to apologize for that <laughs> um because because um of yeah, perpetuating have, this problem i have no excuse so uh, you, got, you all can stop sending me lobsters. I appreciate <laughs> the probably hundreds of lobsters that I've received, received through various DMs and emails and other formats at this point, uh, but I think that will bring to a close Lobstergate unless there's any other 
unforeseen developments uh, over the course of the next few weeks. I love it. All right. So that is uh, Lobstergate. Um, other stuff going on this month. So this was a really big month on the podcast where I got to do a bunch of topics that I'd been meaning to do forever. And somehow I was able to like get them all in one month with like three of what I consider to be not just really important episodes, but ones that went really well in terms of like what I was shooting for versus how it actually turned out. Because sometimes there's episodes where I have like a good idea of what I want to do, but it doesn't like quite materialize as well as I would have liked. But I was pretty happy with the execution of all three episodes this month. And the topics were uh, Zodiac releasing, Dasha's, and then astrology and reincarnation. Mm. So at the top of the month was I finally did the Zodiac releasing episode and finally like publicly did an extensive treatment of that technique for everybody to learn which I think exposed a lot of people to the technique for the first time. And it was interesting seeing a lot of people's reactions over the past few weeks to learning that technique and starting to apply it to their charts the first time. Uh, so do you guys remember when that happened for you? I guess, Austin, it was at that first Project Hindsight conclave, right? Yeah. Uh, so it was summer 2006. Okay. Yeah. And that was really interesting for me because I just, um, I just changed um uh l1 periods for fortune and i had changed uh l1 periods for spirit about four years ago uh at that time and that shift on the l1 for spirit happened uh during like the last three months of me being in college where i was i was trying to finish two senior theses for two degrees and i didn't care at all i was suddenly i was like fuck this i just want to be an astrologer <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as far as a, a person's focus and meaning changing and like what you want to do with your life, like I'd been in a Taurus period since I was 15. Um, and so I was, you know, uh, around 20, coming up on 23. And I was like, you know, what? I don't care about this anymore at all. I just want to write about astrology. And I would like write bad astrology articles instead of working on my senior projects. And I didn't, you know, I didn't learn the technique that mapped that huge change in orientation until about four years later. Um, and then I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. That's and that's huge. what's really brilliant about it. Once you learn it and you go back and look at your past chronology and you see those important turning points lining up with the technique, it can sometimes be really startling. Um, or at least that was my experience. And, and from what I've seen, a lot of other people have that experience as well. Yeah, I'm actually going through my I'm 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 doing my first loosening of the bond on you know on the highest level. I'm looking for something, but I'm still listening. All right, more or less right now. You're you're in a level two loosening of the bond right now? Just about, yeah. I need to recalculate it to make sure that the numbers are right. But it's a it's like it's within the next month. Wow. That's that's huge. I mean, that's yeah. once in a you know, people only get like probably one or two or maybe three of those tops in a lifetime. Yeah, you know what and what's funny about it is there's sort of a double down because um I'm uh, speaking of dashas in my vimsatory dasha I'm about to I'm like less than a year from changing out of a period that I've been in since my mid 20s. So I'm changing level 1 and loosening on level 1 um according to both of those techniques over this year. Wow. So that's pretty big. And well, that's funny yeah, it's also. It's confusing. Well, sometimes, 
that transition. It's always like a major transition in terms of the person's career and life direction, but sometimes it's like not anticipated. Sometimes it's like something that comes out of nowhere in terms of pushing the person and taking them in a different direction than they were headed up to that point. So that's really interesting for you and I'll be curious to see how that turns out. Yeah, I mean me sometimes too. it's just pushing you to the very top of your chosen career field, so that could Wait, be other thing. 12 months from now you're going into a loosening of the bond, Austin? Uh no, uh within the next month or so. And okay. then, and I'm switching out my uh and I'm switching out my level 1 Dasha, which I've been in for 16 years this year as well. And I'll be okay. going into like a was it a 19-year Saturn period. Wow. That's yeah, this is really interesting. This is a technique that I'm like, I'm still trying. Well, it's not that I, I mean, I understand it and I'm sort of starting to watch it in my chart. I, and I realized the other day, um, I need to watch it in someone else's chart. Like, I can't believe I haven't done it for my husband yet, but that's what I'll be doing. Um, because some of the things when I think the first time I learned about this technique was actually in the foyer at New Orleans UAC when we were all chatting and like, probably six or seven years ago 2012 was that you act in new orleans yeah and i remember you guys were both like and this and that and that and then it's going to happen this in your early 40s and it's gonna be really good and i'm like okay that sounds great good i'll take it and i you know have still i haven't you know still six years later done um a lot more with it but i'd like to understand more so i'm really i'm the episodes you put out this past month chris uh i feel like they're gonna just be really rich for people to chew on and kind of really sink their teeth into for quite some time to come. Yeah, and that was the point was to lay a foundation that would be really important and influential for a lot of people. And it's already like having some really interesting um, sort of echoes or like cascading in this interesting way because for one, I wanted to thank again Peter from AstroSeek. I don't know if you guys have used this website a lot, but He's really like killing it lately with integrating traditional and other interesting stuff into this website so that it's not just accurate calculations, but it does zodiac releasing now. Um, it, it can calculate your lots really accurately. He just integrated a lot calculation for the lot of arrows. Um, he also calculated really quickly, integrated a thing for calculating your dashas um, so that I, we could release that in concert with the Freedom Cole interview on the Vim Shudri Dasha system because I was doing research and I found that there actually wasn't a good, simple, and aesthetically ap appealing free Dasha calculator out there. I sort of just assumed there would be like hundreds of them because there's so many websites on Indian astrology. But when I was looking, like none of them were that great. They're so, they're mostly a, a pain. They're yeah. there, but the the they're not as accessible or user-friendly as they could be, certainly. Right. So I talked to, to Peter, and he set it up within the course of a few days. So you can go to AstroSeek and calculate all that stuff now, which is really cool. There's another calculator at zodiacreleasing.net for zodiac releasing, and he's been integrating some interpretive principles that I use for the technique, like the culmination periods, the peak periods, and other things like that. And it's really nice to be able to access it now on mobile devices. And then I just got word the other day that Astra.com, uh, Astra mm. Deanst is finally integrating Zodiac releasing and they're in the process of finalizing it now. So hopefully at some point in the next few weeks that'll be live and people can then you know use what is everyone's favorite chart calculation website to calculate the technique there, which will ju probably just further sort of promote and expand the technique and open up research uh, into it more widely. 
It's definitely, um, uh, it's definitely, uh, should we say, uh, it's definitely rich in terms of potential research, and it almost not just rich; it kind of requires research in a way mm. that some techniques don't. Um, yeah, I, in my experience, it takes longer to the getting to know you period with zodiacal releasing is probably longer than any other technique that I yeah. used. Um, it's, you know, and it, it, it happens, you know, that rapport <laughs> develops, but it's, um, it's, it's front loaded with difficulty. Yeah. Well, it it's takes it, some while to learn the technique and it works differently and gives you a different perspective on your life. I think than people are used to, and sometimes that catches mm-hmm. people off guard and they almost think that it's not work it working because they like or they'll say that it's, it's not working because it's not presenting things almost exactly as they expect it but it's providing this different perspective it, and it's often a, oh go ahead sorry oftentimes people just like need somebody to sit down with them and go through it and then they start to understand how it is working and how it does apply to their life but unfortunately it's like i can't do that with everybody so i hope people will push through that in order to work with the technique and apply it to other charts and see how it works and eventually start to get a sense for it. But it does have that kind of filter uh, sometimes. Okay. So Chris, um, one, I agree entirely. I think one of the uh, one of the things that contributes to there being a longer getting to know you period is you have to learn to see the life from the angle that zodiacal releasing maps the life. Mm. And it's a different right. angle than almost any other technique. Also, yeah. I just rechecked my zodiacal releasing and the loosening of the bond happens on the day of my birthday this year. See, uh. this is what's funny to me, Austin, because I have the same this year. I have a loosening of the bond that started on my birthday. So like now and yours is in a couple of weeks. Um, About a week. Yeah. Um, which is very interesting, but I, I, I I'm pulling up both your charts right now because I'm really surprised. That that I'm like maybe, and I I would like to just put the disclaimer out of I could be making a massive error, but I was reading no, over I, some notes. I, I believe um, uh, you. one of the things I think is different with a technique like zodiacal releasing, it is a planetary period style of system, similar to the the dashes and things like that. But a lot of modern astrology does not have timing techniques that are period or length of time based, like that chapter orientation. And I think that's part of the challenge. In addition, I totally agree with what you're saying, Austin, where first of all, you're reorienting the chart to a part, which is a massive change for a lot of people with more of a modern mindset, that it's not about the ascendant or the chart as you look at it with the ascendant in a certain place. You're almost like spinning it based on the lots. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, th- I think yeah. The view from the lots is different than the yeah. view from the planets. Absolutely correct. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you're going into a level two loosing of the bond. It's the first one you've ever had in your entire life, Austin. And realistically speaking, you're not going to have another one until like 2038. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's great. That's bizarre, but that's uh, great. On the same day that Mercury stations direct and Uranus goes into <laughs> Taurus <laughs> to Taurus, and there's a new moon. Um. Yeah. Uh, basically, on top of my son. Wow. So we'll Great. see if I. Yeah. You know. Um. If I grow fangs and fur and my limbs drop off and I become something. That's else not going to happen. But I think you'll start publishing again. Yeah, but that's that. It's got to be more than that because I've published. You, you know, I know like, you've that's done not that before, like a, but that's not an amazing change of direction. 
Well, it's not a change of direction, but if you published a book that was more successful or more popular than what you had published in the past. Well, of course, because I've been building since then. I think it'll yeah. be, I, with, when I see uh, changes in spirit, what I see- th- Yeah, dif- what do you think it's going to be? I see differences in priority. It's sort of where, how you're, it's in priority, what you're aiming at, um, direction, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I have suspicions about what that might be, but I think I kind of have to get there. Yeah, I like it. And um, Kelly, we've always had that issue with your chart where yeah. you're born so close to sunrise, not knowing whether to treat it as a day chart or a night chart, and that ends up affecting uh, the lots. That's, but I, yeah. But I'm just pulling yours up now, and if we treat it, and then you have to push one of the lots forward because they're both in the same sign anyway. And does that happen whether it's a day or night? Sh- it does, whether yeah, it's a day it or does. night. Yeah, tra- Okay, so no matter what, you're starting from Aries. If that's true, you're also, yeah, you just started a loosing of the bond um, on level two. It started yes, February. Tw- wait, wait, no, it's starting tomorrow, February 27th, 2019. Yeah. That's bizarre. That's my, it's my birthday. And that's why I like Austin and I are absolute twinsies because I'm quite sure that's not a standard turning 40 thing. Um, and wow. we were both born in such different parts of the world. And, you know, it's a bit weird, but fantastic. That's bizarre. But I'm jealous. That's amazing. And that's really good news. And also happy birthday. So t- t- tomorrow is technically your birthday. When is your solar return? Today on recording day. Yeah. Today's. My solar return happened a few hours ago. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, happy birthday. So this is like, you guys are my best birthday present. <laughs> yeah. This is a rare and unique forecast episode then. Um, and so this yeah. month will have Austin's birthday, although he has temporarily vanished in true Dark Horse style. Um, yeah. But he'll return. So that's bizarre. Um, so you're both having a loosing of yeah, the bond. Yeah. Like when Austin on- said that, I was like, am I misreading? Because how can we both be having a level two loosening of the bond? Um all right. And well, it is interesting for him where he's like, well, I've already done books. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, this is, your, this is your book because this for is- For me, I know it's books, but I know for him, I'm curious to see what it's Well, Austin's, it, you know, he did the magic book, he did the Deccan's book, but it's almost time for like the third book. Yeah. I would think. I have several of them half planned. Yes. See, there are going to be more books from you. Yeah, but I'm I'm just saying that's not that's not the change of direction for right. sure. And I yeah. mean, and you know, sometimes with loosening of the bond stuff, uh, loosening from spirit, um, and just you know tracking the, the the spirit schedule. Sometimes I see things like you know. Sometimes I see it looking different on the surface, but the real difference is in what the person is trying to do what's mm. meaningful to them, how they're defining their life. And, yeah. you know, if somebody is, you know, if somebody's a writer, they may continue writing. You know, they're not necessarily going to become a bricklayer. Um, but the trajectory <laughs> and meaning and meaning of their writing changes. They start aiming yes. to accomplish something different by yeah. means of writing or by means of painting or whatever. Um so, and I can feel, you know, I've been, it's been a, a swirl of internal, I don't know, I say reconfiguration, which has not really been that pleasant uh, leading up to this. And I can feel it like starting to make sense, but, you know, I'll have to see what coagulates. You know, I think by the end of March, for a variety of reasons, um, <laughs> you know, there, there will be, 
There will be order out of chaos. Yes, but we're all swimming through the puddle of chaos until then. Yeah, and it's not going to be until the end of both of your loosing of the bond. Once it's over, then you'll see how your trajectory has been altered. But oftentimes, it's not until you get to the end of that that it becomes fully clear. Right. Um, well, and as you've pointed out, there's the loosening of the bond itself, right? Which for me mm-hmm. is on March 5th. But then that what whole begins March 5th. My, yeah. my, my loosening of the bond occurs on March 5th. It, it begins, the period begins March 5th, but that's just Because how like, long does it take? Right, well, right. And, but what I, and Chris, we're leading to the same thing, but it ta- uh-huh. it's that whole period that follows, yeah. which for me yeah. is a Sag period. So that's the whole year following where we'll see that. So it's both of you. are both going into a Sag period. I have a, a Sag, Sag period, period too. So Austin, 12- we're massive twinsies, I know. right? We can't escape each other. <laughs> All right. So it's 12 months for both of you. So that's really fascinating. Yeah. So we're going to have to check in one year from now. This will be a great um, sort of empirical test case for what the loosing of the bond is like in two astrologers' lives uh, over the course of the next year. It's going to be really fun to see how it does shift and what changes we each go through. Yeah, it'll be fun. All right, get get your secondary progressions book out. That would be my main. I'll do that. Austin, you have to still figure out what yours. Well, you say you have ideas of what yours is going to be. So. I've got a, I've got a couple that I've been kind of, um, uh, that have been percolating for a couple of years. So we'll see. Uh, I kind of want to do a mansions book. I kind of want to do. Um, uh, Chris, I've been talking with you on and off about this for a long time. Um, you know, there are all these there, these combinations that you see in, uh, in especially in Hellenistic texts that now that I've done some serious geotish, read to me as yogas that were right. meant to be yes. memorized by students rather than taken as just an example of Firmicus riffing. And so I've been putting together a project around that, um, you know, using... Using some of using some of the the general categories um, through which planetary combinations are handled in Jyotish to kind of think about um, these you know these uh, these combinations in Firmicus or Dorotheus or whatever, and so there's that. But there are also like three or four other projects. Well, I'm looking forward to you getting them out. Yeah, me too. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and so. Okay, no, go on. Um, so last thing I did want to mention, so there was some errors in the Astrostic calculations initially. So and also a, a bug was discovered in Solar Fire where when spirit and fortune were in the same sign, you're supposed to move spirit forward one sign, but it was also moving fortune forward one sign, which you're not supposed to do. So I think they're going to issue a patch for that soon. But everybody who's learned zodiac releasing in the past month, especially if you're born near a new moon or a full moon, so that your lots are in the same signs, you should um, pay attention and do the calculations manually, or at least do the set the releasing from the correct signs, just to make sure that you're releasing from the right. You're getting the right periods because I'm a little nervous that some people may have like learned the technique initially, but then generated periods for like the wrong signs or something. So everybody should go back and just double check that you got your zodiac releasing periods correct if you started learning the technique recently, especially if you were born close to a new moon or a full moon. All right, so that's zodiac releasing. That's a huge topic. There's lots of other stuff there. There's a whole episode on it as you yeah, yeah. you and Lisa release that, right? Yeah. Well it was only four hours long. So it's like, you know, we didn't uh 
scratch that surface. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I know that you probably could have done 24 hours, but four hours is still a lot of material for people to uh, sink their teeth into. Right. Like, people are not going to leave that episode hungry. I mean, they may want more, but they're going to have a lot to play around with. Yeah. Well, there's always the 18-hour like Zodiac releasing lecture <laughs> that comes with my course. Um, well, I was a little like there was a few comments. They're like, "Oh, this is four-hour-long video. I'm not going to watch that." But it's usually like a, it's the most complicated technique that yeah. I teach, and I usually introduce people to it through like in workshops. That's like a day-long workshop, or sometimes mm-hmm. like a few-day-long workshop in terms of first learning the technique. So four hours, while it seems long, is actually a pretty reasonable little introduction to one of the most complex and like powerful timing techniques out there. So cut me cut me some slack on the four hours, people. You did good. Um, so Zodiac releasing, the second topic was the Vimshodri Dasha system with Freedom Cole. And Austin, I have to thank you for connecting me with Freedom because even though I had met him before at UAC in 2012, you'd really been promoting his book and you'd been telling me what how, how amazing he is. And this was my first time really working with him and that was great. And I'm really glad that I was able to do that episode with him because it was a really good introduction to one of those techniques that really gets people interested and hooks people into Vedic astrology. And that's part of the purpose of that episode. Awesome. Well, I've been trying to matchmake y'all for a long time, so I'm really glad it happened. And yeah, Freedom's, I mean, talk about somebody who just knows their shit, like inside and out with textual references, with practical references. He can just, he's really, you know, that was the reason I studied with Freedom is he just kept impressing me. I was like, well, if I'm going to do Vedic, I'm I'm going to, I'm going to study with Freedom. Do it with the best. And I, and I did want to uh, admonish the audience a little bit because I've noticed that the numbers on that episode are not as high as some other episodes. And I think it, it's part of the title. It's that I said the Vimshodri Dasha system in Vedic astrology. And I'm sure there's like a significant portion of my audience, it seems like, that saw the term Vedic astrology and then possibly didn't watch it or different didn't listen to it. I really have to urge everybody to go and listen to that episode because part of the reason I did it is because that's one of the more interesting techniques that if you learn it and if you are exposed to it, then that's going to give you some appreciation of why other people have gotten interested in Vedic astrology. And it's because of techniques like that that are actually really cool and have something insightful to teach you. Even if you don't adopt Vedic astrology, there are things that you can learn from studying that technique that are applicable in Western astrology like you know, when using zodiac releasing or some of the Western time lord systems like that. So I'd really encourage people to, yeah, to watch that episode if you haven't already. I think. Yeah. I, oh, go, go ahead, Kelly. Sorry. <laughs> Somebody just got a uh, bingo there. Yeah, that was a bingo. bingo. Um, one of the things I have dipped my toes in a little bit to the Indian or Vedic system, not as much as you have, Austin, but the little bit I have done has really just helped deepen or enrich my thinking even about astrology from a western perspective it just it it it's just adds a bit more in that even if you don't pick up that model you don't have to change your whole framework it's just good to know about a little bit from that perspective so that'll be a cuz the timing system the, the reason that episode with freeman is so good is that there's a timing system in there that's relatively easy once you have the printout you could just start thinking about longer periods of, of your life through the lens of certain planets, and that may actually give you more insight to those periods in your life. Yeah, yeah. 
and um, now that I've I've been trained on it a little bit and I've gotten used to looking at it, I love it. I you know I look at the I I don't necessarily discuss it with every client because it's not always relevant you know as part of the conversation. But you know I look at both ZR and uh, and the Dasha and the Vimshatori Dasha system like as a as a background for what's happening every time, and it's really it's really useful. It's um. It's also uh, the Vimshtori Dasha is, I, at least at this point, feels not simple, but easy to use. Um, it's accessible. In, it's like, okay, so you're in the, you know, you're in a period ruled by this planet. What's the natal condition of that planet? And then that's modified by the second level. Um, and there are very clear rules governing, you know, what that looks like. You know, and if you have those two planets in a configuration, with each other, then, you know, if you've got, let's say you've got a Jupiter moon conjunction, um, which indicates a lot of success in a particular area, then like when you're in a moon period and then the sub periods Jupiter, it activates that combination. So, and you get the result that's promised. There's a very clean way of looking at, or it, it's a very clean way of looking at what is promised by the natal chart and when it is delivered. Um, that's it's found a, a very comfortable place in my arsenal. Yeah, definitely, Great. and yeah, just and just being exposed to that. I mean, because people have to understand that part of what I'm doing is I'm taking some of the best and some of the coolest pieces of different forms of astrology and different approaches to astrology, and I'm presenting them to the audience. And that's kind of what I did at Kepler, and that was why going to Kepler was so beneficial for me because they literally forced me to study some of those other forms of astrology that I had no interest in studying, but it did ultimately end up enriching me and causing me to go down a different path than I would have gone otherwise. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do in paying that forward or passing that on to my audience. But the only drawback is because this is a this is not a school, it's like a podcast. You guys can pick and choose what episodes you want to watch, but um Sometimes there can be a downside to that if you avoid watching episodes that you don't think are going to be interesting, because this one was definitely an exception. Where this month I would recommend listening to every episode. Well, and I I want to compliment you in your arrangement of podcasts. I think doing a big ZR and a big Vimshatori Dasha um, podcast next to each other and juxtaposing those systems is is nice conceptually and aesthetically. Yeah, well, and it was very deliberate. I went out of my way to do that, and there's just so many different reasons for that because it's literally exposing two of the most powerful timing techniques from the oldest traditions mm. of astrology that are around, and showing you the parallels between them as well as some of the differences. But it's really they're they're both like the best and two of the most compelling reasons to study some of the older forms of astrology. And try to bring some of that that wisdom forward into the present time um, are those two episodes. So, anyway, check it out. Um, let's see. So the third topic I did was I had this amazing discussion with Stephen Forrest, where I've been trying to get Stephen on the show for a few years now, but it just didn't line up just because scheduling is hard. Because he, you know, of course, is like famously booked out like three years ahead of time for consultations. Yes. which he he uh, quipped that his strategy for dealing for dealing with that in the future when I asked was just eventually to die at some point and that's <laughs> going to be his strategy for you know getting his schedule down or under control eventually 
He has a phenomenal um, level of sort of staying power or endurance or productive capacity. He's been going at that level for a really long time. Well, Kelly, you know he's got cliche. Go ahead, Sun and Capricorn. Yeah, he's also got that grindy Saturn and Virgo, Kelly. Oh, he does. Oh, he's in the middle. Okay. Austin and I will follow along in his footsteps. Just give us time. <laughs> I, I actually right. shut down consultation, new con- booking new consultations this month because I could see that terrible fate awaiting me. And yeah. I'm already like... Um, it's it's the interesting. Waiting, the waiting list yeah. is too long. And so, you know, I found myself like um, catching up on consultations from like that were booked in May, in January. And I was like, okay, we just need to shut this down for a little bit. So when you say shut it down, have you taken that page off your website or have you put a like not taking, like if yeah, someone exactly. went to your website, would they see a note there that says don't buy this now kind of thing? Or Yeah, I believe we have a, there's a, you know, if you're, when consultations are open back up, feel free, you know, you can be on a list and be alerted, but we're, we're shutting it down for right now. Yeah. There's, I'm trying to Marie Kondo a variety of things um, because the, the last, you know, last year was. Um, a, a blessing in terms of success, um, but I, the structure was not ready to handle that, and I I got really behind and just felt fuck felt guilty and anxious all the time. I was like, I need to clear this out. I need to get breathing room. I need to feel good about getting back to people on time, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean. These are the problems of success, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're great problems to have, but it, do, it it is a thing that as you do start to hit some of those sort of professional achievements, you have to think about restructuring or how how am I going to put systems in place that help manage this because one person can only do so much. Yeah, absolutely. And Kate, you know, Kate Kate's helped me a lot over the years, but Kate's um Super She's succe- had an explosion of success of yeah, her Kate's own. <laughs> super successful and busy at the same time too, which is, again, that's a wonderful thing with Sphere and Sundry. But there's just been, you know, less time, <laughs> less less time, energy, um, you know, work hours, um, and anyway, more to do. So yeah, I shut it down. Well, yeah, I be, but you're right. Like uh, Stephen has somehow managed to hold in his head that he has a client book two years from now, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's funny though is also he had the result. We didn't get into this as much as we could have, but he has also gone out of his way not to raise his prices too far above what he feels like is appropriate. He's he's charging like three something for consultations, which is still a lot. But like given his stature in the community and how far out he's booked, obviously he could mm. charge a lot more, especially since some of those are like in person consultations. Um, but he doesn't, and that's like another interesting facet of the whole, you know, issue or debate or tension that sometimes we've talked about in the past about like what to charge for astrological consultations or what's appropriate and things like that. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it's a tricky one because from a pure business perspective, when your wait list or your client list, you know, if you're booking three or six months in advance, every business strategist out there would say raise your prices. Um, and sometimes that thins things out a bit. So you might bring it back to like a one or a two month wait list. Sometimes it doesn't though. It just right. you know feeds this phenomenal sense of demand. But I, I totally appreciate the heart, if you like, of where Stephen's coming from, because there is a price point that then, you know, you become inaccessible to certain parts of society. 
Right. And that's a fine line, I think, that anyone who's offering any type of healing service, you're always juggling that sense of what you could charge versus what you'd like to charge just to keep things accessible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so our topic actually in that episode, though, was reincarnation and astrology, which was an interesting discussion topic for me because of my own personal journey and like getting into astrology through reincarnational like new age literature but then feeling like being surprised that I didn't think that astrology seemed like it was able to tell with much specificity that much about past lives and then eventually that stopping or ceasing to be like the philosophical backdrop that I looked at in astrology and instead just focused entirely on Astrology and natal charts talking about this life, and that's sort of all I care about at this point philosophically. Um, where have you guys, how's that gone for you guys? Did you have any background in that or any beliefs or anything related to that? Yeah. Um, I if didn't. It's like a small question to ask. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll try to question. keep it reasonable in length. Um, so. I didn't come into astrology from that perspective. Um, you know, as I said, my first like real astrology books were the Noel Till books, which were very okay. present. Um, you know, there might have been some new agey stuff in the background, but it was it was pretty much like here are charts, here are rulerships, here are signs, here are aspects, here are houses, this is how you do this. And so and I was very much like, does this does this work, you know, as advertised? Um right. and the more I learned and the better um I got with it. I was like, oh yeah, this this is amazing. This totally works. Um, I, I I would say that I have long had um a sort of loose belief in reincarnation in the sense that of the various alternatives, it seemed to be much more likely than the other ideas. Um just you know the 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 reality doesn't seem to waste things. Everything gets reused, and mind things and consciousness things also probably. You know, it seemed like they would like they would not be the exception to that. Um, obviously, since I've been studying uh, Vedic astrology more closely, as well uh, as yeah, as I've been studying Vedic astrology more closely, that's built in. Um, mm. And I really enjoy the, uh, um, should we say, the specificity and sophistication with which reincarnation is dealt with. It is, um, I think, there's a lot of value in not hearing it secondhand from a 19th century theosophist who read some half, you know, read some not so well translated Indian material. But instead, like going to an Indian tradition, and I don't know if we can say that India or that reincarnation was quote unquote invented in India because we see we see some of that in um, Eastern Mediterranean, uh, uh, you know, societies and beliefs and all that. Uh, we can say that that's in Plato. Um, but regardless of whether it was quote unquote invented in India. Um, a great deal of thought and attention and rigor has been brought to dealing with it. I would, I think, probably in or probably more than anywhere else. Um, and that is, uh, you see that in Vedic astrology, um, where there's, you know, there are lots of, there's not just karma. There are lots of different grades of karma, 
And there are specific divisional charts for looking at something that's much more specifically past life versus all the stuff you get going on in this life, which is not necessarily past life. And I, I, I've just, uh, I've really, I've really come to appreciate the, I've come to appreciate it when seen through a finer lens. And I, I've also explored some of, not recently, but, you know, over the last however many years, explored some of the literature, the, the, the testable case, case for reincarnation. And there's a, there's a, there's a strong empirical case for it as well. Um, and if it's not reincarnation, then it's, uh, there's still, there, there's a, there's basically, there's an excellent case for it. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at. And some of my personal experiences suggest to me, um, uh, suggest to me that that is indeed the case. Although I would not say I understand how the whole thing works. I am like, like you said though, Chris, very careful about, especially in client consultations about, m- about going to past life karma um, as the source of a problem uh, or the, you know, as being the solution to what's happening because you're in a Mars perfection and you're kind of cranky, right? It's like, we don't need to go there. So I respect that it's there, but I do, I I do try to uh, maintain a firm boundary, firm, but permeable boundary between this life and others. And that is my not short answer to your question. Okay, that was the short version. It's um, quite succinct, re- relatively speaking, for such a big topic. What about you, Kelly? You don't seem you don't strike me as the reincarnational astrologer type. Look, <laughs> I'm, I don't. Yeah, I'm like, um, you just I don't want to offend anyone, but because I never do. Um, but yeah, I think there was a lot of light and fluffy stuff that I felt when I was first looking at the topic of reincarnation within the context of astrology early in my career that was a little bit insubstantial for me. Then when I read um, The Myth of Ur at the end of Plato's Republic, so a little bit like you, Austin, I didn't really want to read, you know, some person who might have had a vision, you know, 50 years ago and had this idea about reincarnation I did want a little bit of an older source. And yeah, once I read um, The Myth of Ur and Plato's Republic, which is this beautiful story about a soul incarnating, you know, choosing its lot in life, going across like the desert of forgetfulness and drinking from the river of unremembering, you know, and then speaking to the three fates and them confirming on the spindles where the planets would be and then incarnating you know, that to me spoke a little bit more. I was like, okay, these ideas are older than what I had maybe initially thought. Obviously, they're not modern things because, you know, when I'm as a teenager and in my early 20s, I didn't have that sort of historical background. Uh, so that definitely gave me an appreciation for the concepts. And I do hold that awareness. I'm like, I totally am on board with that. But I did find that when I went into my practice, the real meaty stuff is happening in this lifetime. So a lot of my work is very much, it's not to say that it's not deep or it's not rich or it's not spiritual, but it's very much about, well, how are we going to move forward from this place now, given this is where you are? Um, So yeah, probably not, you know, and and I know that like, obviously our dear friend, Mark Jones, who does a lot with um, the nodes and a lot of past life type work. And obviously Stephen has a huge, model that he works with. Um, And there's definitely some really useful things. Like I think from memory, Stephen had an article years ago in the Mountain Astrologer where he talked about 
you know, the ruling planets of the nodes being so critical and things like that. And I do think there's some use in drawing those in, but I might frame it in a different way to the, to the way that he might go about it or that Mark might go about it. Sure. Yeah. And, and ultimately, that was the most important thing about that episode is just looking at and exploring the different philosophical approaches that astrologers have when they approach astrology. And there are modern astrologers where reincarnation in past lives is a overt and important both philosophical as well as like technical principle that's be- been integrated into their astrology and then there's other modern astrologers where that's just not the case and and that's not an element or a, either a philosophical or technical principle that they're integrating at all but it's interesting to just explore those different philosophies and to view them on their own terms to understand the the sort of breadth and diversity within the astrological community when it comes to this whole thing that we we do. Yeah, and I think Austin, you know, is onto something, not that it's just him, but that there's so much connected to fate and reincarnation and even concepts of things like karma that are, that come out of the Indian traditions. And I think in some ways you you need to study that to get that piece uh, you know we're in we're trying to import some of that stuff into our western framework and it i don't know i feel like austin's approach of like let's just go back to the source material here um and understand the different layers to it that's probably a really good approach if that's a topic that you really want to go deeper in yeah well and that's sort of what we've been doing in a lot of ways for the last 20 years or so right like that was like okay um, you know, this 19th century book on astrology is interesting. Oh, it's referencing this 15th century book, which is referencing this 12th century book. Like, let's yes. just see. Like, We followed the breadcrumbs. Yeah, like, let's just follow it back. And I think that's especially true with concepts like karma and reincarnation, because those were largely imported into the English-speaking world during the period that uh, England uh, was colonized India and they were imported through you know a decidedly distorted racist framework and mm-hmm. so it wasn't like a clean you know that wasn't like a that's that's not a clean channel um and so you know that's part of you know that's part of colonial history and then you know you get this thing where you have uh, Westerners like sort of seeing something that people in another part of the world are doing and saying like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. I can do it better. I don't need to study your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, if we're, if you're going to bring that, you know, if you're going to you if, if you're, if you're going to work that way, um, you should study, you know, you should study the source material. Um, you know, where did that, where did that idea come from? How was it developed? And it's extremely well-developed and it's, it's extremely sophisticated in a way, you know, in a lot of the Indian material in a way that I don't, I don't see it being discussed in the West. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the funny things to me when I look at like Indian astrological literature or older ancient astrological texts is that's often just like not focused in any overt or explicit way on past lives. It's focused on the present life things that are going to happen in the present life and there's like an underlying assumption in some broad sense that that has to do with past actions that somehow may have influenced the future or the present but for the most part i mean at least to me in in what i've studied of indian astrology and and even ancient western astrology it's very much just pro- very practical and focused on the details of this life which for all intents and purposes most astrologers 
that's usually their orientation as well in terms of clients is what's going on in their life right now, what are their concerns coming up, and just different strategies for like managing that or coping with that in different ways. Yeah, I, um, and I think that there is an assumption that yeah, some of what's going on now is a result of past stuff, but like we don't need to get crazy about that, right? Right. It, it's yeah. just yeah, sure, of course. But we know you've got you're going to start a business. Let's find out the best time to do that business, and you know, <laughs> or you want to get married, or you know, you've been feeling down. So that brought up though an interesting point when I was talking with Stephen, which is this question of it's interesting then. Now that you have an astrology where it's much more overtly trying to integrate like broader philosophical and like spiritual or religious overtones into the astrology more overtly, if there were traditions, ancient traditions that tried to do that as well, because for the most part, what we see in the textual transmission is just like practical rule books for making interpretive statements about one's life or one's future. Um, and you don't get a lot of that broader philosophical stuff in those technical textbooks. So there's some interesting questions about to what extent that existed or you know, in the Platonic, were there Platonic astrologers that had beliefs in like reincarnation or whatever that they overtly integrated somehow into their astrology or was it actually just very practically oriented like the textbooks seem to indicate? Yeah. We don't really know. So one additional just point on on karma because I was reminded of literally I think it was like week one in Freedom's class we went over four kinds of karma, um, mm -hmm. and so the one and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Sanskrit because my Sanskrit's not good enough it's embarrassing but one is um, all of the karma that's ever been generated by your soul through all lives the next level is what portion of that is relevant in this life because it's mm -hmm. not all relevant in this life. The next is the karma being done, like literally what are you generating with your actions right now? Like what are the results of doing a podcast, right? And then the fourth category is what's coming up or approaching most likely based on your orientation and what you're drawn to. And so that was, you know, that was like you know, I think week 1 or 2 was like, okay, so there are at least four meaningful categories. And then those have three levels of intensity, which um, and that three levels of intensity um, hooks in really easily to your rule of three, Chris, because there's there's the karma that is like wrapped up tight and, you know, good luck changing it. Then there's that which is written in sand where all you got to do is kind of move it. And then there's the like, you know, the clay or like the half dry clay, which takes some doing. Mm. Right. That's and a that, beautiful way of describing the layers. Yeah, I was just, uh, you know, and I was like, oh, this is so nice. I love like nuance and clarity <laughs> and sophistication, which right. you, you so need. You so need that when you're dealing with something as um, as big as the concept of karma and vast. Yeah, the malleability of one's fate. Um, and uh, other interesting point um, in the Indian tradition. I remembered when I was like going over the Indian stuff again or reviewing some of it as I'm starting to read some of that again this past month that um, one of the significations sometimes associated with the 10th house in Indian astrology was karma to the extent that karma, the um, parallel word in Greek is proxis and mm. the Greek astrologers associated proxis with the 10th house and proxis means a action or literally what one does. and 
So the 10th house became the house of actions, but also the house of what one does, which then eventually led it to become the house that has to do with one's occupation or one's profession in some sense, that which you accomplish in life mm -hmm. or the, ac the actions that you take. And so there's a, a weird, interesting parallel there with the concept of karma being associated with the 10th in the Indian tradition as well, and that idea of it being actions or the actions that you take as well as the results of those actions. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's it's really important to take karma in to remember that karma can just as much refer to the present and the future as the past. When you say karma, you know, there's this connotation where if you, if I say, oh, well, that's your karma, it means, oh, well, that must have come from a distant time where it's like, no, no, you're generating karma right now. Like, right. What, mm -hmm. like you're you're, the it. word means action. Yeah. So important point, important parallel, and another important instance of why studying the traditions in parallel can sometimes be really useful and interesting and enlightening and can help even if you're not an Indian or a Vedic astrologer, sometimes studying Vedic astrology can teach you things about Western astrology and give you different insights into it that you didn't know uh, before. So um, those are the main topics I covered on the podcast this month. It was a big month on the podcast. There was one little minor uh, episode I also that somehow didn't fit into that sequence as like neatly as I would have liked, so I didn't release it as like a main podcast episode, but I just threw it up on YouTube, and that was the what we lovingly called the Drunk Astrology Podcast that I did with my friend Cam White and uh, Kayla Marie, who are two local Denver astrologers here of the uh, Pluto and Sagittarius generation or, or persuasion. Uh, so we've talked, I think, recently, Austin, about this new like wave of astrologers coming into the community over the course of the past few years that are in the like late Pluto and Scorpio or early Pluto and Sagittarius generation. And you've really seen that as well as like a wave of people or Oh yeah. The um I, I think the average age of the consultations um probably dropped by eight years for me this year. Like okay. I was getting, I've I've read for so many people in their twenties this year, which was yeah. you know it's not that I didn't read for people in their twenties, but there was this relatively kind of even distribution from like late twenties to sixties, whereas the as the um as the young people average age yeah as the young people have gotten <laughs> really interested in astrology we're like middle aged now <laughs> oh yeah I mean forty used to be old um, yeah. It is old when you're 27. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it, it. I mean, it is. It's a light. It's a universe away. But yeah, no. I've yeah. I've seen that just in the like the demographics of who I'm reading for. I've I've done read for because a lot of people are like, oh, dude, I'm going to have my Saturn return because people know about a Saturn return now. So I'm getting you know people you know booking in their in their mid 20s, um, much more than I ever did before. Yeah. Same for you, Kelly. Yeah, totally. I, I was like, I don't want to miss the drunk episode, uh, the drunk astrology episode debrief. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm the same. I am noticing the, there is a, like more and more clients with birth dates in the 90s, basically. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so you know, anyway. younger than my younger sister, I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting old, but it's great. Um, and I was really, I actually watched that episode. Maybe I just saw it on YouTube. 
because I met Cam at the Soda Conference last year. Oh, yeah. I heard that you guys ran the party together. We ran the bar. We basically got everyone drunk. So I was really excited to see him doing more um, alcohol pushing with his astrology. So Yeah. yeah. And I should clarify, because I think there were some people that like read the title and then were just like outraged and didn't watch it. We weren't like wasted. We just like had a few drinks and then had a casual conversation. It was really about- like astrology over wine, basically. Yeah. Were you guys drinking wine? I couldn't tell from the glasses. Uh, no, it was like rum and coke or something like that. But, okay. Um, yeah, which is very Austin. You would have liked that. And I think we've all at conferences had a few drinks. There was like a very, very, like everybody seemed to love the episodes that I almost wished I had released it as an audio version, even though we didn't get anything, anything terribly deep. And that's one of the reasons I didn't. And because I already met my quota for episodes this month. So I just threw it up on YouTube, but um, there was a very small, small percentage of people that seemed to be outraged about the idea of like drinking and talking about astrology or something. And, and somebody said that it was um, tarnishing like the entire profession of astrology or something that or not representing it well. And it made me wonder if any of those people had ever gone to an astrological <laughs> conference where you know sitting in the bar and having a few drinks with friends and talking astrology is a good part of of what we do. It's near mandatory. Right. Yeah, it's uh I I don't even think I I'm speechless at this. Um like I mean, I think as we said this in the pre-show chat, I wouldn't have a drink and do a reading. No, no way. That, I don't right. even drink 24 hours before I do a consult. Like, you know, if I have a consult Whatever. I don't drink during the week usually because I, I do consults during the week. But to just to have a chat with some friends, um, it, it, I don't know, that seems like a little extreme to me that it's totally okay in the context of just discussion to have. I mean, I'm thinking about that last night at UAC. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, where um, there was lots of juicy conversation, but there were also a lot of drinks. Yeah. Well, it just brings up a thing that happens sometimes where people sometimes take it too seriously and don't allow themselves or don't think that you should have any fun with astrology because it's like serious business and they want it to be respectable in the world or something like that, which is funny because that's obviously something I would, I agree with and I sympathize with, you know, from that perspective. And I'm certainly doing that myself but it's like sometimes you also have to relax and have fun with astrology and that's almost like a whole separate conversation of the um casual or the playful side of being being an astrologer and still being a human being um yeah as like a topic and unto itself yeah which i think is uh, i think it's i think it's important to crack the false image of the um, the all-knowing prophet with the crystal ball, with the, right. and the purity. You know, it's like no, this is a thing that people can do. It's a thing you can learn. It's you know complicated and difficult, and some people are more inclined to it than others. But this is this is actually a human thing. It's the astrologers aren't like um, aren't you know some some other you know they're not they're they're human beings, and I think that. With this, when you know, with astrology being an outsider profession for a lot of the last several decades, especially, um, you get this sort of distorted, romanticized, demonized image of the astrologer where they're either um, a godlike being or a charlatan. 
and mm. neither of those is true. I mean, I guess there are charlatans out there, and who knows, maybe there is there are a few godlike beings. But you know, all the astrologers I've met and know uh, are human beings who have studied and cultivated themselves. Yeah, like we're not like sitting on a mountaintop monastery, like somewhere constantly. Uh, we're all just like normal human beings that are doing normal social things that we all do, and especially. Yeah, just getting together and talking with other astrologers and having casual conversations is part of the fun of meeting up with other astrologers, and that's why we—that's part of the reason that we go to conferences and things like that. Yeah, I mean, some of us yeah. are pretty weird, but um... <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> uh, oh, I, I am. Um... No, I know. <laughs> oh, we all. I mean, look, I would include some of us are very weird, but I think we own that weirdness and we're totally okay with it. Um... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that episode is available on the on Astrology YouTube. Podcast YouTube page, uh, which is actually titled The Astrology School. You can find it through just linking to wherever it is. I'm sure there's plenty of links to the YouTube page on the astrologypodcast.com website. Uh, so there's that. I think I released the audio of that as a casual astrology podcast episode, which is available to patrons of the Astrology Podcast on the $10 tier. I also released a zodiac releasing workshop that I did with Lisa where we sat with an audience and we just like took charts from an audience at a local Denver astrology group um, and did their zodiac releasing periods. And actually relevant to both of you, there was three interesting examples where we had three loosings of the bond in different charts. And in each chart, the topic associated with the house it was jumping to actually ended up being relevant in describing part of the nature of the transition that occurred in the person's life at that time. So like one person, it was a loosing of the bond and it jumped to the ninth house and they had like a religious conversion that ended up altering their career and life direction. Um, another person, I think it jumped to the fourth house and it was something about their home and living situation that changed. So um, that was, again, the technique is so complicated and there's so many different pieces of it that we're still learning and researching different facets of it and there's still plenty of work to do in terms of that yeah so we're still learning new things about it anyways that was something that I released to patrons as well on the casual astrology podcast and I'll be interested to see in your charts if that becomes relevant over the course of the next 12 months as you go through your loosing of the bond yeah, that's really exciting to hear, Chris. That the house was really significant. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm yeah. not as excited about that. Right. Well, it's jumping, it's <laughs> why? Jumping into why your, Austin? Well, I, it's the, jumping the into sixth, sixth house, house is not the is not um, the most full of riches. It, it could just be though. I mean, it is one of that triad of like second, sixth, tenth house, so it could still be tied into your work stuff, but maybe just. Like I was thinking uh, when you were talking about your consultations and stuff, and putting that on hold if it wasn't reorienting like the process of doing some of that and how you structure your entire sort of consulting and teaching and everything else business over the course of the next 12 months as you adjust to where you're at at this stage in your career. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. But I just don't have to be excited about it. Is what I'm saying. Sure. No, you don't have to be excited about it. I mean, it is sixth house, so like, you know, there are better houses to be excited about, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I'm so excited you... about both of your transitions, so I will, well, be... we'll be checking in every month. Don't you worry. Right. <laughs> You'll be hearing from us. People could be sick of it by the end of it. Definitely. 
All right. And speaking about transition points, that's probably- Is that a a smooth segue? That might be a time to segue since we've been talking about an hour and eight minutes to transition into talking about our main topic for this episode, which is the forecast for March of 2019. Um, Shall we jump into it? We shall. Let's do it. All right. So let me see if I can throw up for the video viewers the uh, calendar for this month that just shows- some of the major ingresses that are taking place over the course of March. So here it is. So this is just showing when planets move into different signs. When it's the so le- pretty, the background colors, honestly. Yeah, this is from really this pretty. year's 2019 <laughs> Planetary Alignments calendar. The background was designed by Jack Cusimano and the foreground and everything else by Paula Bellomini. So I put that on Amazon last month. I actually ran out. I need to restock that, but hopefully there'll be more posters available soon. Um, but yeah, we've got lunations this month. We've got Mercury retrograde in Pisces taking up a large part of the month. We've got Uranus moving into Taurus. It's actually a pretty, pretty active, pretty dynamic month, it seems like. There's a lot shifting. I mean, when I was recording my uh, March videos for my membership, for my subscribers, you know, there's things happening on different levels. You know, we have like the meta level of Uranus moving into Taurus, for instance, which is obviously a huge event that is going to shape the next eight years. And then, you know, we have more kind of medium level stuff where we we do have a Mercury retrograde. It's not as though we never have Mercury retrogrades. Every three months we get one. This one's got a little bit of a unique flavor because it's in Pisces. It's with Neptune so much. Um, so, and then, you know, at the end of the month, Venus and Mars just changing signs. So there was like some really big stuff. And then some of our kind of month on month stuff, um, just as a summary point, I thought the lunations this month were both really interesting, um, a little bit striking in the sense that, you know, new moon with Neptune and then a full moon right on the equinox, zero degrees Libra. Yeah. And let me, while, while we're at it, why don't I throw up the animated chart so we can look at the specific alignments this month. And I think just like to pick up on something Austin said, which may have been before we actually put the recording on, <laughs> which seems to be always when we have our I know, most we, fun we always talk like way too much right before this and we get all of our good points in and then we forget to like- We forget what they were. Circle back um, around. But you could, and you could kind of sit on that diagram you were holding, Chris, which is there are a couple of really big days this month where like a bunch of stu- stuff happens and then we have these quieter weeks almost where there isn't as much happening. So- right. There's a you know two or three kind of forty eight hour periods where like everything happens at once, um, one at the start of the month and one towards the end of the month. Um, yeah, I don't know, Austin. What, do you want to start with March? Some thoughts? Yeah. So, do you have was, a lovely analogy for us this month, Austin? <laughs> what are we kicking or swimming in, in this in month? The, in the <laughs> tradition of like meat grinder. I'm trying to think of the other. I think people are still in therapy about that. So I feel like I'm going to have to counteract if there is another meat grinder mention. We'll see. I mean, um, so (laughs) I love it. I'm happy with that one. You can, there's also Lamarck, there's also the lament configuration. Oh, oh man, my that Lord. was another one. Well, this month, this well, month, I don't have, seems I have, a lot. I have a, I have a, um, a less threatening metaphor for this month. Okay. Um, okay. So I've been thinking about it and. So there are, you know, there's this epochal shift of Uranus into Taurus, but in terms of raw action, you know, Mars, Mars is kind of just bulldozing in Taurus. Yep. 
Um, Chugging along. You know, Venus, at the beginning of the month, Venus is done with that dramatic run through the second half of Capricorn. Um, you know, and Venus and Aquarius, I like Venus and Aquarius. I, I own one. Um, but it's not, it's not a- You're partial to her. Yeah. Um, yeah. How should we say? Um, but it's not like, it's not initiating a lot of action, right? It's not Mm -hmm. really super configured to anything. Um, and the, the focus really is on Mercury's retrograde and Uranus's ingress into Taurus. And so- Again, Uranus's ingress into Taurus is, um, you know, it begins an almost, uh, you know, it confirms an almost decade-long shift. And there will be short-term things where there will be, you know, that green lightning is going to strike and you're going to see things from a different angle. Um, And be like, oh, you know, again, with Uranus's ingress, there's just like perspective change. There are, there's almost always... um, uh, a political or um, ecological correspondence with Uranus ingresses um, that um, I, I would be shocked if there wasn't uh, if there wasn't an Earth-based thing that celebrated rather vociferously Uranus's ingress into Taurus. Um, but it's you know it's an ingress with like mm, you know a lot of implications. And I see Mercury's uh, Mercury's retrograde and the, the Mercury stations retrograde within about thirty six hours, I think, of of Uranus's ingress. Uh, the Mercury's retrograde precedes that, um, and so it feels like um, it feels like how do I put this? I was talking with with Gordon Gordon White the other day about the Mercury retrograde, and he was he was feeling the shadow. And he was like, it feels like a like a Philip K. Dick plot twist. Do you guys know Philip K. Dick? No. Okay. Yeah. To tell Famous us more. Science, science fiction writer. Yeah, and um, one of the things, one of the one of his signatures is that it's not that there's a plot twist. It's it's that the entire perspective on reality changes. Like, oh, we've been living in a simulation, or oh, this isn't actually the real world. Like it's. Uh, it, it's the same kind of twist you sort of get in the Matrix, where it's like, oh, that's not the real world. Except usually with Philip K. Dick, you're n- there's not a reveal where, oh, this is the fake world and this is the real world. There's usually a which of these is actually real. Um, and so we have the two fish there almost as competing realities. Um, and I think that uh, I, I think that there's other, you know, uh, Pisces is Jupiter's terrain. Jupiter is very strong right now. Whenever we're talking about Jupiter, we're talking about worldview. We're talking about your your story for reality, your framework or paradigm. And that this Mercury retrograde being in Pisces configured to, to Jupiter, which is in a strong position and being, you know, all up on top of Neptune, it's going to have a lot of like trying to figure out the relationship between different realities or between different stories about reality. It's very paradigm shifty. Um, And that might just be, you know, for some people that might be pretty, that might be obvious and forefronted for some, it might, you know, like if it's in the sixth house, it might be the reality. It might be like, what is, what do I need to do to get healthy? I thought I was being healthy by, by doing this, but I'm, I'm still sick. And then there's this other perspective on this. And, you know, so it could be smaller like that, or it could be, if it's in the fourth, it could be uh, about like the story you've you've been telling yourself about your family um, forever. Mm. Um, But it's very like, 
you know, multiple realities and um, ambivalence between the two or three or whatever, and kind of uh, grinding out or coagulating a story, uh, 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 a more accurate story or paradigm or way of looking at, at, you know, at that area of life. Yeah. The one thing I keep thinking about, which you, you you touched on there, Austin, is the the strength of Jupiter in Sag. Not that it is neutralizing the Mercury and Pisces, because I do think there is going to be sort of that puddle and messiness and blurredness. But it's sort of my take on this is like the Mercury and Pisces retro, as hectic or chaotic or as confusing as it might be, it is somehow speaking to or serving or trying to help Jupiter on his way or, you know, there's some sort of like reason or purpose or it's part of a larger story, even if, you know, the paperwork right now is a hot mess kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's going to be a total hot mess as far as surface Mercury configuration or uh, 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 considerations. Um, you know, as far as like paperwork and travel and getting emails um, back on time and, um, you know, technology, all of the like the classic surface Mercury stuff, like total mess. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of deeper philosophical paradigmatic stuff and story, life story stuff that's um, that this is going to be really good for rethinking and reframing. Yeah, I meant to mention to you guys last month, and I spaced it out in the forecast that I noticed when the Jupiter-Neptune square first went exact several weeks ago that there was some theme that came up that was really strong of like truth, like themes of truth and justice triumphing over lies and deception being like a really strong theme that I saw in the news for for a few days during that time period. And I realized that that was one of the ongoing themes that I think is going to come up at different points this year, especially as we get the the other two exact squares between Jupiter and Neptune. But it's one of the themes that will probably carry through as like an ongoing theme on different levels, um, just with that broad square that's still in effect for the entirety of the year with Jupiter in the superior position earlier in zodiacal order, overcoming Neptune as well as those other Pisces planets. That makes sense. Yeah, it is. There is this sort of constant dance between the Sag and the Pisces parts of our charts. Like those two houses keep whatever the story that, you know, and you could, you could put a story together based on the topics of those houses in your chart, you know, the Pisces house and the Sag house. They're constantly bouncing off each other this year. Um, you know, Jupiter Neptune squares part of it this month with the planets moving through Pisces and squaring Jupiter. Um, I mean, the sun's going to do it this month, I should say. Mercury's going to do it for the second time. Um, when we get into April, we'll have Venus in Pisces linking to the Jupiter and Sag. So there is this this undertone or this riff where we're constantly looking to adjust or rework the way that your Pisces part of your life connects with your Sag part of your life. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I can see that. So I'm just animating the chart and moving it forward to that um, Mercury. So Mercury, of course, early in the month stations retrograde at 29 Pisces. And I'm just looking at that direct station where it stations direct at 16 Pisces. It's like a hot mess. Yeah. Right. That's so close. And it, But you mentioned Venus and Pisces, which is interesting because Venus almost She's at the same time- She's part of the time, cleanup crew. Yeah. She moves into Pisces almost simultaneously. It ingresses from a tropical Aquarius into Pisces right around the same time at the end of March when Mercury's stationing direct. 
Yeah, I think technically um, Venus moves in on the 26th and uh, Mercury stations direct the 28th. But Mercury will be in station for a couple of days before it actually, you know, switches from retro to direct. Um, well, and I I thought, you know, we obviously we're going to have a lot of confusion. But for me, Venus coming into Pisces at the end of the month was like the light at the end of the tunnel or the silver lining that the paperwork eventually gets straightened out or the mess and the muddle finally gets untangled and there's some sort of sweetness or little boost that we get as Venus kind of comes into the territory that Mercury has just, you know, poured a big glass of water over. Right. I don't know if you guys had thought about those, you know, how what, what it's like to have Venus come into the sign right after Mercury was retro there. Yeah, I mean, I like that idea of cleanup um, because sometimes like Mercury, that even that first conjunction already – a lot of people were reporting like starting to see some of the like anticipatory or like opening sequence of events of the mercury retrograde much more intensely compared to other ones because with the mercury retrograde it's like normally we sometimes get issues with like miscommunications being like a mercury retrograde theme but then that miscommunication or sometimes deliberate miscommunication like deception is a, a mercury Neptune theme in it of itself. So when you combine the two of those, it's almost like intensifying that theme and making it more certain and more likely in some sense. Um, but I'm curious if Mercury stationing direct conjunct Neptune is helping to clarify the problems that were created at the opening of the retrograde and at the first conjunction with Neptune, or if we're still going to be dealing with some issues at that point, just because like Mercury Neptune itself is is inherently kind of a you know maybe I don't know if I'm, deceptive is part of the term but there's another term for that maybe that's a little bit more neutral what's what's the more neutral term for deceptive <laughs> I mean dazed and confused is what I keep coming back to um I don't know that it's always intentionally deceptive but it overlooks things or misses things such that it may not be presenting a f the fullness of what's going on, but only a piece or a facet of it. Yeah, the the glamorous side or the, the idealistic and the beautiful side of things, and maybe not necessarily emphasizing the less than idealistic side of things. Yeah, well, you know that that's all true. Um, you know, Neptune does some other things. You know, Neptune. I've also known Neptune can also. So there's the um, there's the falsely positive glamour in an enchantment sense, uh, side mm -hmm. of Neptune and Pisces, or uh, just glamour, Neptune. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. Yeah, the glamour is a great yeah, word. in the sorcerer's sense. Um, but there's right. also, there's also the getting caught up in like, uh, in an equally false nightmare version, which is sort of an anti-glamour where, mm -hmm. you know, with Neptune, you get, Neptune helps you get caught up in a story or a, you know, a, a myth. Um, or, uh, you know, a tale, a fairy tale. Um, fairy and tale. you know, if we actually look at fairy tales, most of them are pretty nightmarish. You know, I've had Neptune on my son for pff, a year and a half. And, you know, I was just saying to, to Kate the other night, um, you know, I felt like I, like uh, my experience is just reflecting on that because it's just about to be done. My experiences have been both sort of fairy tale good and also like totally nightmarish but um beyond the bounds of what feels normal in both directions if that makes sense mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. know neptune you know if we talk oh neptune is dreams well some dreams you can fly 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, you can fly and you have amazing experiences and you talk to gods. And then other dreams, like you are, you are, you know, you are stuffed down inside your worst fears and worst moments. And they're depicted in, in 3D entertainment format where you're caught in your own horror movie. Like that, Neptune is the realm of dreams and it, and it contains, I think, both of those. And I, I would say that, um, with Mercury coming back to Neptune, it's a getting, it, it may not even be getting the, you know, maybe it's cl helping clarify the reality tunnel or the story or the dream. Um, or maybe it's just finding the right one. Cause we're always, you know, there's always some, some story running in the background. There's always some narrative. It might just be, like I said earlier, like getting a better framework, getting a better, um, you know, uh, getting a better story for what a more accurate, a story that fits the facts that maps to what's happening. Um, and that can be, you know, that can be a myth of self, right? Like, who am I? What's my story? Or what is my life? Or it can be much more specific. You know, it can be about, you know, if it's in, like I was saying, like, if it's in the sixth house, what's the story of my, of my health, right? What's the story mm -hmm. of what's healthy for me? Like, you know, what's if it's in the the seventh, what's the story of partnership? Because we have, you know, when you get into people's heads um, far enough, you find you find that they have they have uh, stories about different parts of their life and about their life as a whole. Mm. Yeah. Narratives, stories, sometimes fairy tales. Um, sometimes those are not very sometimes they're like romanticized versions of what they think about that that part of their life is like, which may or may not have as much connection to reality as they think that it, that it does. Yeah, or you know, and what I find a lot of the time, I would say, I would say one, I think that um, the uh, stories are the way that we get a functional frame of reference to work on things. Like you know, there's the story that everyone is born and they grow up and then they get old and then they die. Um, like that's a story, but it's a story that maps to the facts as far as I've encountered them. Um, and, uh, you know, we have smaller stories. So one, I'm, I, I just want to make sure that when I say story, I'm not using that pejoratively or to mean fiction. It's just our best possible understanding of how those sequences run. Um, however, um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to toss that story. I think the, the birth life death thing is pretty solid. But we also have right. stories of we have, you know, we have the way that we made sense of what happened to us, let's say, in relationships up to 25 years old. And then that story kind of stuck and we didn't even realize it. But we've been interpreting, you know, we've been interpreting relationships through the sequencing of that story without meaning to for the last five years or 10 years. And that it, you need to you need to shed stories um, from time to time mm -hmm. and go back to the drawing board, look at the facts as they are and come up with a new story that actually fits all of the facts internally and externally, or at least fits them better than the one that you've been inside of. Yeah. So it's almost questioning or exploring whether a story that you've told yourself or you've been attached to is still relevant based on, you know, the current present or the facts as you know it or the new awareness that you have brought through. Yeah, yeah. Little little story audit with this Mercury retrograde. Yeah. Sometimes you need a story and that story plays a really um, important role, the story that we tell ourselves in motivating us or allowing us to get through 
certain parts of our life or to motivate us and inspire us in ways that wouldn't happen otherwise if we were purely paying attention to the like cold hard details and like facts and the like non-romanticized version of our life and that might be an, an important theme going on here especially with this new moon i'm just looking at this new moon taking place yeah. towards the beginning of the month at 15 pisces pretty closely conjunct neptune at 16 pisces right as mercury is stationing retrograde at 29 pisces and thinking about that as a as a sort of theme as well yeah well because facts don't tell you who you are facts don't no. facts don't tell you what's meaningful um you know they they need they need to be taken into account but like you know we need we, we always have to go beyond the facts and people who are pretending that they're only sticking to the facts that's their story i'm a person that only sticks to the facts that's my story i don't believe in stories right like it's like okay well right. you just came up with a fiction about yourself right right I mean, it's a true fiction if that's what you do, but it's still a story that structures your identity and it structures to a certain degree the events in your life and the way that you interpret them. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me what we're kind of discussing here or touching on is the idea that, you know, we're inferring what's between the facts or the data. And this is very much, I guess, like Pisces or Neptune land, if you like, where we're looking at the nuances or the feelings or the the sensory stuff that that may not be a fact or a piece of data, but is helping to give context or give a framework to the facts as you understand them. So we are in that kind of ethereal, almost liminal space, especially at this lunation that you've put up here, Chris, where, you know, the sun and moon are both conjoined with Neptune. Um, that's a very, you know, that's like a real strong Neptune pulse coming out energetically. Yeah, well, and it kind of thinks Austin, you mentioning um, Neptune transiting your sun reminds me of when I was first getting into astrology. That was part of the transit I was going through was Neptune squaring my sun, and and like I was saying earlier, when you're talking about reincarnation, my entrance into astrology was going through a really heavy, new agey type phase where I was interested in all of that weird sort of um, in between stuff that was kind of like nebulous and sort of quasi spiritual and everything else, and that's the encouragement that kind of like led me into astrology and eventually i came out of that transit and found myself questioning some of the things that i believed in when i was going through that transit but eventually what i was left with was astrology still seemed to be like this legitimate thing that seemed to work and be tangible in some ways and so i continued to pursue that even as some of the other things sort of fell away from my sort of interest and like visibility um, but sometimes that the, the point of that is just the importance sometimes of having those things that inspire you and draw you in and lead you in a certain direction in your life. And even if they're, you know, flirting with that border of truth and lies, they and ultimately end up being going one way or another, sometimes even just that motivating factor can take you through different parts of your life, even if retros in retrospect it ends up being much different. Or looking much different than you thought it was at the time. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's um, there are again not all stories are fictions, but um, even some there there is such a thing as a useful fiction uh, yeah, at a certain a time fiction. of life. I would also say that there are there are aspects of life 
um, and awareness and reality that are that are relevant to a human being, but are simply not knowable or catchable with um, with our intellective faculties. And so the best you can do is is get a story that maps to them because you can't have uh, you can't have the sort of total knowledge that you can have over certain physical aspects of life for that area. I think of like like throwing uh, like throwing a bunch of flour on top of uh, the uh, an invisible creature. You still can't see it, but you can at least map the shape of it. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you ever had me major Neptune transits, Kelly? Have I ever? Have you, <laughs> you don't have any personal... Well, a few years ago. <laughs> right. A few years ago, Neptune went over my ascendant, my sun, my moon, my, opposed my Saturn. It was a really good few years. Um, I mean, I got married in that time. Okay. And I did have an adjustment around what being married meant in terms of, you know, identity, you know, who am I if I'm now sort of this wife person? What does that mean for who I am and what, what kind wife of a person? wife do I want to be? And it was really weird. I had to go to, to therapy about it for a little while because I wasn't expecting to struggle that much. You know, before um, my partner and I got married, we already had a house. We were already raising his kids. Like we already had ticked a lot of uh, big relationship boxes, but that was really, um, it was tricky. There was some confusion. I definitely had some of the lower energy. That's very typical of the Neptune transits. and uh, Like fatigue? Yeah, just being tired or a bit more run down. Or drinking. Um, lethargic. Um, I probably was drinking. And I, I find for me, um, it's actually usually eating. Like overeating is something that, you know, having, you know, ascendant and moon in Pisces, like when I decide I'm eating, like don't get between me and the food. Um, like it's, and Kira, you know, the naturopath, um, medical astrologer that I've worked with for years, she told me that a long time ago, like one of your issues is just going to be, you just consume too much food, um, because you have no boundaries when it comes to eating. So that's been, you know, a thing. Um, yeah, no, and there were, I'm sure there was probably drinking. But the the biggest thing that comes to my mind about being stuck in the Neptune kind of fog is you can't rely on data points. You know, if the, the, if it's literally like your eyes are closed and you have to move forward regardless and you have to draw on other senses, you have to trust your instinct, almost like your spidey senses rather than your rational brain. And I think that's really uncomfortable for most of us, but that's a huge part of what March is asking um, from us, yeah. basically. There's no data that you cannot make this decision on data points. Does it feel good? Does it not feel good? You know, and you, you, it's a much harder place to operate from, although I think it's more primal and more raw, but we don't always go there, yeah. basically. I want to add to that. Um, you know, if you think about, so if Neptune and Pisces um, point towards the ocean and thinking in oceanic, you know, aquatic landscapes. Um, how do you, you know, how do how do sea creatures figure out what's going on, right? They yeah. use sonar, yeah, they, or yeah, they use sonar. They use echolocation. Um, you know, a lot of sea creatures, sharks, for example, can um, can pick up on the electromagnetic signatures of animals very far away. They, you know, sharks literally have like. Uh, electrically electromagnetically sensitive lines of sensors on their body 
um, and they'll pick up on like the like the the freak out of a creature that's dying or thrashing from you know half a mile away, and so you have that yes. more you know enter and uh, en- literally energetic sense, or mm-hmm. you know you're mapping things um, like you said with sonar where you're bouncing waves off them, and you can tell there's a shape over there. But that's not the same as seeing, right? That, that it's not the same as having the detail or the color, right? That, but, but that is, you know, sonar is in a sense a way, a three D way of throwing flour on the invisible man. It's exactly what you're saying, Austin. Yeah, you don't know what color eyes they they have or what you know cloak they're wearing, but you know there's something there. And dealing with the somethings there that you can only kind of sense. I just think that's March. Yeah. Well, and. Just to come, I agree, and just to come back to what I was, what I was saying initially is why you know why is all this like oh what's going on what you know why why is this in some sense necessary now it's well it's because we have Uranus's shift like it's yeah. changing a lot of like suddenly the the ground is shifted and what it, what yes. does this mean who I am who am I in this era what's going what's going on Do I need to change the story because the planets are literally about to change the story for the next several years. Yeah, and that's a really important point because we've we've emphasized that so much in the past, and we did in the yearly forecast, and there have been different points where we did in some of the monthly forecasts. But this is a huge shift: Uranus leaving Aries and completing its decade-long transit and moving into Taurus, and that almost ties back into um, the the topics from earlier this month with the other episodes on the Time Lord and the Dasha systems, which is that. With those systems, it's like really clear when one period starts and one period ends, and that's sometimes literally like a chapter of your life, you know, opening and another chapter of your life closing. And we're not usually used to thinking of transits working that way as Western astrologers. Like we tend to look at them more as like, you know, exact hits and it's like specific, mm-hmm. sometimes discrete events that occur in coordination or in concert with the transit occurring, going exact at some specific time, moment in time. The exception to that, though, is ingresses and looking at transits from the perspective of the ingress, like opening up a period of time, and then it w- when it leaves that sign, it closing a period of time. Um, and nowhere is that more important than with outer planet transits as they shift into they they depart from one part of our chart, especially one whole sign house, and ingress into another. Um, so this really this month is going to be. Closing a lot of chapters and opening a lot of chapters in different people's lives, depending on where that planet is moving into your chart. Yeah. And I would add to that that the outer planets like Uranus, Neptune, Pluto seem, uh, they, they function almost like chapters for the world story. Like the world yeah. story is distinctly changes. Um, you know, when you look at the, the history of those, like, you know, the, the Uranus, you know, Uranus, uh, Uranus is moving to Aries back at the beginning of the decade was like Fukushima, um, Arab Spring, like everything got set in motion. And we're, you know, where we are now is in large part a result of that. And it's configure, you know, Uranus in Aries and its configuration with, um, with uh, Pluto in, in Capricorn. And so this is, you know, the Uranus and Taurus is like a legitimate new chapter. Yeah, it is, and I think one aspect that really caught my eye this month that might help open up the Uranus in Taurus story is later in the month when Venus, the ruler of Uranus in Taurus, moves into Pisces and does make a direct aspect to Uranus in Taurus. Um, it's a little sextile; it happens like twenty seventh of March. 
I'm not necessarily saying it's going to be a game changer aspect, but I think it's just going to start to reveal some of the topics or the themes about Uranus and Taurus um, in maybe a relatively pleasant or, um, I don't know, like Venus in Pisces. I'm just so excited about that full stop. But um, <laughs> she is going to just pull out a little bit uh, of uh, – tell us, Oh, Austin. yeah, I would agree. I would say that that um, Venus will – will reintroduce the the Uranus and Taurus themes in as polite a manner as possible. Polite. That's a great word. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to smash you in the face with it, but here is a beautiful expression of this type of thing. And maybe also, here's the good part. Yeah, that's good. Stay tuned, but here's the good part. There'll be other parts, but it's like a gentle introduction, warming you up, basically. And I, I I like what you said, that it would reveal... I think that it's important with Uranus, especially um, when we're looking at Uranus on a personal level and trying to be like, oh, what's this going to mean to have our eyes peeled and be paying attention and be willing to change our interpretation constantly as more data and thoughts come in. Mm. Uranus does not like it when you're like, oh, it's just going to be this. And I'm, you know, I've got this figured out ahead of time. Uranus is like, no, you don't. Ha, ha, no, you ha, don't. Yeah. Like leave. Especially moving into like a fixed sign like Taurus where whatever house or if, especially if that's like an angle and that's a more fixed or like stable part of your life that you're used to or at least desire to have some stability in, having Uranus move into there uh, really would question and shake up some of those uh, what you think are, are established themes or trends in that area of your life. Mm-hmm. And stories in this case. This, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point, Chris. Like the anyone with a fixed sign rising will have Uranus move in to one of those more active houses in their chart. And that, that can be a little bit more strong in terms of that Uranus pulse and changing your stories, as Austin's saying, whether you kind of like it or not. Yeah. So what is the story that you have or what is the structure you have built up in that area of your life that's represented by Taurus in your chart and the house that coincides with Taurus? And um, how flexible are you to that area of your life changing in the not too distant future? Yes. It's a good way to put it. All right. So we are, as I think befitting of Mercury going retrograde in Pisces this month, we are not going through this chronologically <laughs> in the least. Uh, no, as well, as but usually. to be to be fair, it's sort of like this all starts at the beginning of month, and then it changes yeah. in the last couple days. Like we're okay. basically just getting like the twentieth around the equinox. We're basically just getting the same version of you know we're getting kind of the same thing almost all month. We get the introduction of it at the very beginning, and then it changes when the month is almost over. So it kind of is yeah. one big soup. It really is like from that fifth March fifth sixth period. It's like. That stuff happens, and then we're just sitting with that until the equinox yeah. when we get a little bit more activity. Right. Good point. So um, one thing we could mention, it's like we have the Mercury retrograde, which happens at the beginning of the month, and we ha- have Mercury stationing direct later in the month. But at some point, we are going to have the Sun-Mercury conjunction halfway through that cycle. The 14th, yeah. Right. What do you guys yes. think about that? Well, I think it's going to be one of those Kazemi little moments where it's like you get a clear feeling, but you may still have trouble articulating, expressing, or bringing it outwards. It doesn't, I, I don't think it fixes everything, 
Um, I, what about you? I Austin? think it's the the moment of fixing every of figuring out how to bring it all how to um, how to bring coherence to what was likely confusing and fragmented. Um, you know, if, if you look at that that uh, the, that Kazemi that Mercury Sun conjunction, you'll note that it's also almost perfectly square Jupiter. And so, yeah. in this case, we like that there's a square there because it gives the both planets a relationship to their ruler, who's a benefic, who's in a happy, strong place. And you know, one of Jupiter's greatest gifts in uh, greatest gifts is coherence, where the pieces all fit together and make a larger picture that um, that images something sensible or comprehensible. Um, it makes sense. Yeah. So you think this is the time when people get a sense of everything coming together and then that's what they're doing after that is, is working to put that vision into place. I, yeah. I would say that's where you, that's where like you get the plot to the new story. You're like, oh, yeah. okay. And then, you know, the getting the plot isn't knowing the whole story, but it's, you know, you, that's, that's the, the thread or the rope that you can, you know, you can, uh, you can follow and it get, things get more yeah. clear once you have that beat on it. Yeah. That's a really great point because I do think there is some insight that comes out there. Uh, I think there's still work to be done after, but I like how you've differentiated there that it's like you get the big picture and then you've got you've still got to color in the detail or the nuance, but at least you've got a sense of why, if we like those beautiful Jupiter and Sag, like this is the meaning or this is the purpose, this is the big picture of what everything's been going on for. Yeah. Why was I, you know, why did I, why did my thoughts keep swirling around this one topic and then you finally get. Yeah. And, you know, it's literally getting to the bottom of it. That's what that, that yes. inferior conjunction is. Yeah, getting to the bottom of it. I like it. And is there anything else in that middle week of March that you had your eye on or is that primarily it? And then did you skip ahead to the equinox after then? Oh, uh, me. I thought you meant Chris. Um, yeah, yeah, Chris is like oh, doing a vanishing act. Oh, okay. Um, oh, I didn't notice. Um, so, yeah, I mean <laughs> – it's interesting because we do have, you know, we we have uh, Earth is fairly well represented this month um, with the the pile up in Cap and Mars and, and Taurus. Mars and Taurus, and so we've got, you know, Mars um, Mars is in a trine with Taurus. Sorry, Mark. Good Lord, Mars <laughs> Mars and Taurus. <laughs> so Mercury and yeah, Mars and Taurus is in a trine with Saturn and Capricorn. Um, that yeah. middle, and then Pluto. And so we, you know, we have um, like that's that's a very much like yeah, that's cool about stories and myths and the depths of. But I just got to get this right. Stuff done. But like you also need to, you know, um, yeah, you need to get this work done. And you know, Mars yeah. Saturn um, with Mars Saturn um, uh, uh, configurations, it's always about that grind to a certain degree, yeah. especially when they're trying total grind. The trying is yeah. like, oh, especially in earth science, it's like, okay, and you know you need to churn this out. You need you know, you need to get this done. You know you need to work through this. I was thinking about um when Mars like I think it was the first day Mars entered Taurus, um, I had this I don't know, this uh, th this moment where I where I was I was feeling the transition from Mars and Aries conjunct Uranus, which is so uh, yeah. hyperbolically kinetic and fiery and lit up. Um, and then it, you know, went into Taurus and I think it was the first Tuesday after that. And I had this, uh, this idea of like, yeah, uh, you know, the, 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 the Bible quote about swords being melted down into plowshares. Mm -hmm. Right. But I had that, I was like, Oh, it's no, it's swords being melted down into shovels. Like the shovel yeah. is like the, the Mars and Taurus sword. 
It's like, you know, to dig and to dig yourself out of whatever or or to lay the ground for something. Uh, I also when I think of Mars and Taurus, I also I also think of bulldozers. I think of bulldozers yes. and shovels and <laughs> that is such a bull. It is honestly like the bull charging, you know. A, a bull can take a while to get going. If you've ever watched a bull in a paddock, they are very large, very sort of quite magnificent creatures. But once they get going, you just have to get out of the way because it's like a steam train. Nothing is going to stop it. Yeah. Well, and the, yeah. And the, you know, the whole idea of like a bulldozer or a plow. I mean, a, a bulldozer is basically a, it's a combination of the ox and the plow in a mechanical yeah. format. Um, yep. The whole point is that it displaces matter. It displaces yes. substance as it moves. And so, and that's what, that's what, you know, Mars and Taurus, that's what Taurus is. It's substance. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's making substantial progress against the resistance of matter and of, of piled up stuff. And I've noticed that the, the, the Saturn-Pluto-South node pile up in Capricorn is pointing towards the big pileups in people's lives. And that with yeah. Mars and Taurus being configured to that, there's, you know, there's, there's the plowing the landfill of stuff that needs to, you know, that didn't get done or needs to get done. It's interesting how that's one of the signatures pretty much for the month of March pretty nicely and neatly because we have Mars going through the second half of Taurus pretty much all month and then the very at the very very end of the month on like the final day of March like the 30th or 31st Mars departs from Taurus and moves into Gemini but there's a it, it's weird having like Mars going through Taurus and then it sort of making way for Uranus moving into that sign early in the month at the same time. Um, but it just seems like there's a lot of shakeup or displacement of something like you're saying, Austin, from the, the Taurus part of our chart uh, during the course of March. Mm, yeah. 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 That's interesting. That uh, go on. Sorry. The, that caused some things in my brain that I can't articulate. Just the idea of displacement yeah. or Mars. Because you know we've been going through some of this already this month in February as Mars uh, went into Taurus right after the Mars Uranus conjunction. So Feb- around February fourteenth, Mars went into Taurus. Uh, so we've al- already gotten a little bit of this where Mars is sort of like shaking up the Taurus part of our chart. Um, but then that theme continues uh, into the entirety of March, and then Uranus joins the party and. Not complete something, but then fully initiate something that that Mars had started as it moved through that sign during the f- the second half of February. Yeah, that's a nice point. That Mars is like the the gentle displacement, the small scale bulldozer, right? And the maybe sh- the Uranus coming in is you know the the larger, more explosive. You know, the, now we're bringing the explosives in to uh to really Ooh, get this moving. Yeah, mining with uh, mining <laughs> mm. mining with dynamite. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Yeah, because your Mars does make the trine to Saturn, I think, around the 14th of March and then the trine to Pluto around the 20th. So I don't know. To me, I did see that as, you know, if you've got a particular project or a a mission or a goal, there is a bit of staying power or a stick-to-it kind of energy. Um, I mean, Mars in Taurus is a bit of a never-say-die kind of vibe. Mm, Sometimes say cupcake, though. Mark. Mars in Taurus. Well, it needs a lot of cupcakes to get started, but once it's going, it usually sticks with it. Do you not think? Um, it, I, you know, it really depends. You know, Mars, uh, Mars is, 
debilitated in Taurus or, you know, it's, it's, uh, in its detriment in Taurus for a reason. It's easy, you know, like when you've got, if you like work that Mars in Taurus, you can get that bulldozer, but you can also get the, you know, the sleepy bull that doesn't do the dynamic charging, but once every three weeks, um, you know, problems with laziness or, um, pleasure seeking instead of accomplishment seeking because it's in a Venus ruled sign are, you know, um, consistently on the, on the spectrum of things that Mars and Taurus brings out. But I do think that if you lean, lean into it and try to, you know, try to bulldozer and shovel rather than cupcake, or at least keep the bulldozer cupcake ratio, you know, appropriate, um, you know, it, it's chocolate workable. brownies all around. Cause the thing is, you know, Mar Mars and Taurus is one of these situations where we have Mars, um, Mars is taken as a triplicity excuse me, a triplicity ruler of Taurus. So it has some power and dignity there it has some power and dignity in all the earth signs. Um, but it's also in its detriment. And both of those things are true at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, what life has been like since that, since Mars went into Taurus. Um, it's definitely been really steady, like sort of almost an increase in output for me and just really consistently um, the idea of like the marathon, not the sprint of like, we need to do this today, but we're going to back up tomorrow and the next day. Um, it sort of correlated for me with coming home from being away and picking back up with a lot of things that had been neglected uh, in that time frame. <laughs> yeah. The comments on Mars and Taurus are hilarious. Um, and also just taking us back to, because we've also got to remember back to last year in May when Uranus first went into Taurus in that like few month period where we had some of our, our first glimpses of what that nearly decade long transit is going to be about. And to think back to some of the themes that may have started to sort of come into our lives at that point as sort of pre as a preview basically of Uranus in Taurus coming up for the next decade. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it was May, mid-May 2018. I think Uranus was in Taurus until November mm -hmm. last year. So it can definitely pay to uh, reflect back on that time frame. Yeah, it looks like March 14th, March 15th, 2018 forward. Uh, May. Oh, yeah, May. Sorry. There we go. All right. And that actually brings us to the next lunation. So we talked a lot about the the new moon that was taking that's taking place in Pisces conjunct Neptune, but the second lunation this month is uh that full moon in Libra that takes place just after the sun moves into Aries. Yeah, that's interesting. It's an equinoctial full moon. Both the sun and moon are at zero. And I was thinking about that from a mundane astrology perspective. You know, the Aries, the moment that the sun ingresses into Aries is a very important moment for looking at the, you know, whatever, the destiny of, of nations. Um, but if we looked at that, the moon wouldn't be, the moon would still be in Virgo. But just from a, from a slightly omenier uh, perspective, it's like, well, there's a full moon on the day of the equinox. Like that, mm. that, that feels like it matters, even if the moment of ingress uh, doesn't contain that full moon. Yeah, well, I agree. Well, it's different. I it's agree. like two, two almost opposite themes. Like the ingress is usually like a beginning or the start of a cycle of the sun moving into Aries, and sort of the beginning of what's traditionally been considered the almost like astrological new year. 
but then a full moon is usually more interpreted as like a culmination of events where the moon you know reaches its brightest and its sort of peak fullness and there's like the bringing to completion of something well i would say so or like, i would say bringing to a climax rather than completion right. um and I, that makes sense that this year that this astrological new year is going to start ramped up <laughs> with the with the moon like you know almost climax you know there are a lot of big stories in the world that um you know we're we're not looking you know if we look at like what people are talking about right now it's mostly stuff that's been building and building and building and building like what's going to happen with brexit what's going to happen with trump what's going to happen with this what's you know it's all like it's already at 11 right so it makes yeah. sense that we would get a moon that's you know that's climaxy so the keyword is like the beginning of the climax the <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I always notice too, there's more dramatic either sort of emotional news events or even more dramatic weather events when we get a full moon right near the equinox. So it does have a feeling of kind of high drama. Oh, I mean, do, do we have any doubt that this year is going to be high drama? I mean, we did the yearly together. This is not like- That's true. It's not like a chill year. Where the world, you know, where the world just, you know, sits back, relaxes, and, you know, has a donut <laughs> or a kale shake, you know, a kale shake. You know, oh my god, no, stick with the cupcakes. This is this is this is real history. You know, we'll look yeah. back five, ten years from now and be like, wow, those crazy times. Well, and you know what? But what's interesting is this is the final piece. Uranus moving into Taurus is like the final outer planet piece that has to be that has to move into place to set up all of that stuff that's going to happen a few months ago. This a few months from now, this summer, which is the period we were so focused on in the yearly forecast that seems so tense or so in intense. Um, but it's like we've had a few, over the past few months, like the nodes have moved, have changed signs, and we've started to get the eclipses in Capricorn and Cancer already. So we had that, you know, back in like January, and that set up the eclipses for later this year. Um, we've had obviously Jupiter change signs. We've had the Saturn Pluto conjunction getting inching closer and closer. And now with Uranus moving into Taurus, that's like the final final outer planet thing that's really lining up a lot of that stuff that we're anticipating for later this year. Yeah, and as I've I, that uh, true true. Also, I would point out that Uranus's ingress into Taurus gives us the outer planet setup that we're going to have until like 2025. It's yeah. going to be Uranus and Taurus, Pluto and Capricorn, and Neptune and Pisces, Pisces until we're halfway through the next decade. Like, this is the deal. Yeah. That's kind of interesting since, of course, the Jupiter uh, Saturn conjunction that we're anticipating that really big opening of. On the one hand, a 20 year cycle, since those take place every 20 years. The last one was around 2000, but also the opening of a new um, sequence of conjunctions in air signs for like the next 200 years or something like that uh, also takes place in a fixed sign, which is going to be square to Uranus and Taurus. So that might be connected in there a little bit as well in terms of more emphasis on major outer planet stuff going on in fixed signs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, the you know, I think it's pretty clear that the future we're stumbling into full of confusion and anxiety um <laughs> um is here to stay. You know, yeah. like that's 
That's a really great point, Austin, that like once Uranus gets into Taurus, we now have our outer planet set up. You know, I know we talked a lot about when Jupiter moved into Sag, how that was like actually 2019's kind of started because that's a big theme for next year when we were talking about it last year. But this now feels like, okay, this is the next era, yeah. if you like, yeah. with Uranus coming into Taurus. But, right. but and as Chris Permanently. said, it also sets up the rest of the year. It sets up more than the rest of the year, it but it does set up the rest of the year. <laughs> it does. Yeah. So there's like a, in some ways, March is like another January in that regard, where it's like, we've got something different coming in that now we're going to be dancing with. Yeah, I'm, I'm much um, more into March than I was January. Like, you know, introducing the Saturn-Pluto South Node conjunction Versus like, you know, introducing Uranus and Taurus. Uranus is, yeah. you know, Uranus Uranus can be a lot of fun and a lot of, sometimes it's sometimes it sucks, but there are a lot of good shakeups that Uranus brings. Um, I'm, yes. you know, I'll take, I'll take March over January, any day of the week. I'm with you on that. Yeah. And like, I know that Mercury retrograde is getting a lot of press and it, it is a thing, but the larger meta cycles that are going on in March, I think it's worth it if it's a bit confusing at the beginning for what, you know, they're going to help, uh, how they're going to help us move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I'm into it. And I'm just like, okay, so we've done, you know, eight years of Uranus in Aries now. Like, let's, let's. Yeah. I'm happy not to have Uranus in a Mars Yeah. Let's, let's, you know, while. let's do this part now. Yeah. Um, other point that's relevant. So we're having that lunation, that full moon. Uh, in Libra, but this is actually the first of two full moons that are going to take place in Libra uh, in March and April. So we're going to mm -hmm. get one at like zero degrees of Libra in March, and then a month later on April 19th, we get a second full moon also in Libra at 29 degrees of that sign. So we get the, the unique uh, double full moon in, in the same zodiacal sign over the course of a month. Very cool. We need to get that double rainbow guy to say double full moon. Double, <laughs> double full moon in yeah. Libra. Double, double. Uh, so yeah, that's the equinox and the full moon in Libra. Well, and so let's go back to that because there's some kind of fun stuff about that um, if we look at the rulers. Um, so we've got um, the sun in Mars ruled Aries, and then we have the moon in Venus ruled Libra. And that also happens to be, uh, if we look at their rulers, they're in an exact square with each other. Right. Like at the exact same time. Exact yes, same the time. Venus Mars square. So 23, Venus is at 23 Aquarius and Mars is at 24 Taurus. So they're, and, and they're very close to the minute as well, right around the time that uh, the moon is at zero Libra and the sun is at zero Aries forming the exact full moon. Yeah, and so we can say a variety of things about this, but I think one that's very simple is that what I see with um, the Venus-Mars squares, which occur routinely, is that their their um, relationship equilibration points, like if you are in a relationship, um, regardless of where those planets are, you know, or you know which houses they're visiting, the Venus-Mars stuff. It's usually I, I see people. Um, just, you know, like kind of checking, having to check in and have a conversation with their partner if they have a partner where it's like, okay, so we're doing it this way and let's make a few adjustments. Um, that's a very, you know, it's a very relational, uh, full moon in and of itself and with the rulers squared even more so. 
Um, and, you know, and if, if, you know, for people who aren't in, in partnerships, there's also a like re-equilibrating how you're approaching partnership, um, changing the priority of that. If you're single going from like, yeah, I'm out on the town to like, mm, I'm going to lay low or I've been laying low. I think I want to get out there. You know, these relational transits um, speak to how we are approaching relationships in our life, not just if we have a partner. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I think it's more broad than just romantic relationships. And the other, Venus is actually involved in two aspects mm -hmm. here. Um, the square to Mars, of course, you know, rules of the luminaries, but she is also in a very tight sextile to Jupiter. Um, and so there is, I, I don't think it takes away the Venus Mars, but that Venus, Mar Venus Jupiter sextile, there's some sort of like hopeful encounter or breakthrough or an adjustment, you know, unlocks something that has been a little bit hard to access perhaps. Um, so she's kind of got two different things going I, on. Here, yeah. I, I, I would, I, uh, I would say that Venus wins, um, when Venus and Mars disagree in this particular situation, configuration, because we have Mars yeah. in a Venus ruled sign and Venus has got a, you know, a perfect aspect to a strong benefic. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, as far as the way that that rearrangement will look, it'll probably look like a rearrangement towards the Venusian rather than a, a rearrangement towards the Marshall. All right. Yes. Venus That's is also in way. the superior position. And then it looks like in the minutes, when you get down to it, that Venus squares Mars first and completes that. Yeah. But then uh, Jupiter is just slightly later at 2342 Sag. So Venus then immediately moves to the sextile with Jupiter. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a quick transition from like a disagreement to some good news or something positive. Right, um, a disagreement or like a separation that's like necessary or constructive in order to move on to success or uh, growth later. Yeah, or maybe yeah. being able to, with Venus being in a more victorious position here, being able to patch up a disagreement or move beyond uh, a rift. Right. So the, the unifying theme of Venus, like dominating over the separating theme of Mars. Right. Still having to deal yes. with the separating because Mars is right there. But, right. but so the, que the question of separation arises, but ultimately the Venusian tendency wins out. Yeah. I would say that totally yeah, be the, the, um, the direction of it. And that's not, that won't be like possible for all people in all situations, but that'll it'll it'll push in that direction sure all right yeah. um so we're getting towards the end of this are there some other major themes that we meant to touch on that we have not gotten to yet in terms of the middle or later part of the month oh election thank you Kristen gort just reminded yes. me from the audience because we have an audience of patrons who are joining us today for the live recording of this episode which i am suddenly extremely thankful of because I would otherwise completely forget the we election for this month. Let me see if I can pull it up. All right. So uh, Lisa Scheim and I spent a while actually. I'm actually it was a lot of fun this month or, or a few months ago where we sat down to do for the first time like pick out a group of electional charts for the entire year ahead where we picked out the best chart we could find for each month and then we sold that in like a yearly electional report which is still available on the podcast website uh, but the best chart we could find for this month since of course 
there, there's no way to escape the Mercury retrograde. It's just like that's that's happening. It's happening all month. Neptune's very prominent, as we've said. There's no way to get around that. So sometimes it's like you have questions when stuff like that happens. How much to try to avoid it or downplay it versus how much just to like lean into it. And this is a little bit of a lean into it because it does make that Mercury retrograde prominent, and it's still relatively early in the first half of that cycle. But the electional chart we came up with for this month, it's set for uh, March 13th, 2019 at about 7.20 a.m. Or in other words, with the ascendant, set the ascendant in your location at about 23 degrees of Pisces, which should be just after or right about at sunrise. So the way to use this electional chart is basically just set the, the chart for your location, for your city, and then adjust the time until the ascendant is uh, just below the sun, so that the sun will have just risen that morning, the morning of the election. So the purpose of this electional chart is to get Pisces rising, so that Jupiter is ruling the ascendant, and it's located up at Sagittarius in the tenth whole sign house. Uh, so it's basically, again, it's one of those things we've talked about a few times already this year, which is, and and that you've said Austin, which is just like when in doubt try to focus on Jupiter and Sagittarius most of this year and try and squeeze as much out of that transit as you can. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're doing here. Uh, Pisces rising, Jupiter in Sagittarius in the 10th whole sign house. It's a good 10th house election, or at least it's focused more on 10th house matters pertaining to like career, reputation, um, you know, overall direction, and so on and so forth. Uh, the moon is in Gemini, transiting through the 4th whole sign house at 11 degrees of Gemini. And it's applying to a trine with Venus, which is at 14 degrees of Aquarius in the 12th house, which is not great. Although that trine from the moon in an angular house is helping Venus out a little bit. Um, retrograde Mercury is conjunct the ascendant at 25 degrees of Pisces. So it's not a great chart for communication type matters uh, with Mercury retrograde in Pisces. And that's kind of emphasized a little bit more with Mars transiting through the third house in a day chart, which may reemphasize some potential issues in terms of communication. But um, overall, it's still a good sort of growth-oriented Jupiter election type chart by making Jupiter the ruler of the ascendant. And this is actually one of the last Jupiter elections that you can get um, before Jupiter goes retrograde here in about a month. So we're getting pretty close to Jupiter stationing retrograde which is then going to take up a sizable chunk of like the next several months. Um, so this is getting towards the end of when you can still do Jupiter elections before it goes retrograde, and then adds that additional complication to electional charts from that point forward. Yeah, yeah. Jupiter is in Sag until November, but we are not that far out from the retrograde phase. And retrograde Jupiter isn't in Sag is not a pile of flaming garbage. It's still, well, I mean, I imagine y'all probably still ended up using it and I'll end up using it. It's just not quite as primo. Yeah, definitely. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to take advantage of it here, even though it puts us in the middle of the Mercury retrograde. But as with all Mercury retrogrades, you can't just like stop doing anything for three weeks. You've got to still do <laughs> stuff and you still got to initiate things and make actions. So you get, just got to you know, try to mitigate that by doing them at the most optimal times that you can, and that's part of the purpose of using this electional chart. 
So that's the election for the month. Um, we have three other electional charts that we're going to go over on the Auspicious Elections podcast, which Lisa and I are going to record probably today or tomorrow and then release to patrons who are on the $5 tier. So you can find out more information about that at theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe and etc. All right. So. <laughs> I love it. All right. That's so, so that's the electional chart for the month. That is also pretty much Thanks the forecast Kristen for our reminder. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You saved me on that, uh, Chris, Kristen. So thanks to that for that reminder. Um, are we missing or overlooking any major things in terms of the forecast this month? Well, everything changes real, you know, um, things change yeah. at the, in the last couple of days of the month, you know, we get Venus into Pisces, but mostly we should deal with that in April. And then we get Mars on, I believe, the last day of the month. Mars moves Very moves day. into Gemini, and that's really more of an April topic. I think it's what's important to remember for this month is that everything changes at the end, and whatever March is like is not what April's going to be like. April's going to yeah. be much zippier. Yes. Zippier is a great word for April. So if you feel like you're stuck in the slime or the sluggishness of a lot of the Pisces puddle energy in March... It will be different by the time we get to April. Yeah, it's gonna. April will be uh, things will. It'll feel like somebody hit fast forward. Yeah, there'll be no more stubborn bulls or bulldozers in April. All right, brilliant. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this forecast episode. Then, uh, thanks, guys. That was a lot of that was a lot of fun. It's always good catching up with you, you two, each month. Yeah, always. Totally. Thank you for uh, having me slash yeah. us. So Kelly, what do you have going on this month? <laughs> yeah, we forgot at the beginning of the episode, we just like jumped things. into oh. talking about Lobster Gate and other pressing matters that we didn't even talk about what, well, what you guys are working on. Yeah, oh yeah, working on stuff. So I have actually got my next online class, which is loosely titled, What Should I Do With My Life? AKA looking at career and life direction in the chart. That's going to start um, in the last week of March, so as late in the Pisces puddle as we could push it. Um, but the sign-up info for that is on the website now. And other than that, I'm just getting starting to prep for Norwalk. Um, you know, yeah. post-conference workshop coming up there, big speech to give um, with one of the keynotes. So that is going to be here before we know it. And we what have, about you guys? And we have to like plan whatever we're doing for the podcast event that we're suddenly now doing at the beginning of the conference. Yeah, I, I love how we just like throw in extra stuff. Oh, I know what else I have. And just because on the topic of throwing in extra stuff, I have just um, been chatting to some of the crew down in New York and I will be in New York the weekend before NORWAC, May 18th to teach a workshop on progressions, I think. So I'll have some details about that uh, in the weeks to come. But if you're in New York, um, but otherwise, yeah, NORWAC and our podcast. Yeah, pod amazing. podcast event pre pre conference event happening. What is it like Thursday or something like that? Um, <laughs> I heard I heard that Norwak is actually almost sold out. That they were this yeah. was a few weeks ago. They announced that they were down to a hundred tickets left, and then it was just going to be booked up. And that was a while ago, so I don't even know where they're at now. But if you haven't got your ticket yet, I would recommend getting it pretty soon. I know the hotel itself is already booked up, so people will have to find a roommate or. There's other hotels that are really close that are being used for like overflow. Um, yeah. Yeah. What do you have on Austin this well, month? Well, so at other than birthday celebrations. Yeah. Um, 
So at the uh, at the very end of the month, um, I need to pick the exact days, um, but hopefully it'll be announced by the time this podcast is out. I'm beginning my year one and year two classes. So it's going to basically be the rest of the year. Year one is we're going to build from the beginning and do signs, planets, aspects, houses, dignity, fixed stars, synodic cycles, and chart synthesis. And if you're comfortable with those things, then um, you can join year two. Or if you've graduated from my year one, where we're going to do timing techniques, remediation, uh, introductory planetary magic, electional. And so both of those are big year-long classes. And we're going to get started end of March, uh, early April. And I'll have that up on my website in the next couple of days. Awesome. That, that sounds, sounds great. Sounds great. So that's austincopic.com. Kelly's website, of course, is kellysastrology.com. Yes, thank you. What about you, Chris? Um, I did want to mention, I just remembered, uh, scholarships have been announced and there's a bunch ah. of scholarships available for conferences right now. So I know Norwak has a general scholarship and they have a, a diversity scholarship as well. So you can find out more information about that on their website, norwak.net. Um, AFAN, I think, has announced scholarship yes. are available both to attend conferences, but also educational uh, scholarships for other things, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. All their scholarships are now open for application. Okay. And what's their website? It's like afan.org? .org. Yeah. AFAN.org. Okay. And then and Norwak.net, I think, for the Norwak ones. Yeah. And then um, NC, the NCJR, the other big conference this year is the NCJR conference in yeah. Baltimore in August slash September. They've also announced that they have some scholarships that are available to NCJR members. So look into that. Um, and I meant to mention, I've been men meaning to mention the, you know, I'm speaking at the Astrological Association conference in the UK for the first time in June. And uh, my workshops, I'm doing a day-long workshop on Time Lord techniques, Zodiac releasing and annual perfections, and that's starting to fill up as well. So if people are in the area, they should definitely look into that and check that out because uh, I'm excited about giving those workshops. Uh, but I think that's, that's excellent. it. I think that's it in terms of events for me. I'm adding a bunch of stuff to my Zodiac releasing course. Like I said, Lisa and I did that workshop here in Denver where we went through people's charts and I recently added that to my zodiac releasing class um, as well as my Hellenistic astrology course and I've just been adding a bunch of new content to that course recently and that's the main thing that I'm focused on so people can sign up for that um, anytime that they want because it's a study at your own pace course uh, just so you can adapt it to your own schedule so you can find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com and I think that's it guys um, wow, we survived. Right. Yes, we made it through our a very brief two hour and 20 minute episode. Um, thanks to all the patrons. There's like 40 patrons here that are joining us. Yeah, thank you guys. That's been a lot of fun and it's also been helpful um, hearing some of those comments and seeing some of the discussions. And thanks just in general. I meant to give a, a shout out and a thanks to all patrons who have been supporting the podcast. This is a big month for the podcast. And I'd been, like I said, I'd been putting off talking about zodiac releasing for a long time because that's like one of the core techniques that I teach in my course and it's only through having the support of the patrons and you know what that's become through the support they they give through Patreon that I'm able to do some of those things and like host some of those discussions here with like Stephen Forrest and Freedom Cole and everybody else so thanks everybody for supporting that work I think it's making a difference in the community and helping us to talk about 
not just important issues, but also interesting techniques. Um, yeah, so thanks for the help on that. All right, that's it. Thanks, guys, for joining me today. Um, and I guess we'll be back again next month to talk about the forecast for April in a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we will. At the end of the Pisces puddle, we'll reconvene. Well, actually, right. Chris, I look- sorry, I got. I also have to thank my patrons. I can't let you go okay. being gracious without. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much to my patrons who support my um, absurd literary tendencies um, and need to take four times as long as I should to write things. Um, thank you all for uh, being patient with me and giving me the time and space I need to do what at least I think is the best work possible. Um, and I also, I, um, I, I'll also, um, let's see, what else am I doing this month or something I forgot? Oh, well, I'm also um, busy electing things for Sphere and Sundry, um, but I can't tell you what. Yes. Very exciting. Various magical occult things. Yes. Goodies. Concoctions. All right. Um, Awesome. Well, this has been fun. Uh, Thanks a lot for joining me today, guys. Thanks to all the patrons and everybody for listening. Uh, This has been episode 195, I think, of the Astrology Podcast. So we're going to hit episode 200 here pretty soon. Do we get to be 200? I mean, we might be able to do it. I wanted to actually pitch you guys an idea, and you'll have to let me know what you think about this. Maybe later but uh we've done planets we've done the signs i'm starting to feel like it's time to do houses and i was going to ask you guys if you have any interest in doing houses yeah all right say say <laughs> that think about that yeah, I mean, think yeah about, it's I'm just, just scheduling it it's just going to be the time okay. i mean you know i'll do i'll do whatever you guys like i'm happy what do you what but do you think we'll austin? have to get austin's opinion no, right, he'll we'll have a more yeah, measured I mean, i'll do it I'm, I'm, i can't tell you when i'll do it at this moment but yeah let's do it all right. Yeah. Let's make it a 2019 project so it doesn't we've got no pressure to get it done quickly. That sounds good. Well, one way or another, episode 200 coming up, so we'll see if we can make that coincide and do something together. Um, yeah. So we'll be back again next month. That's it for the podcast for February, so we'll see you again in March. So thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.